Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And so we should definitely um, pause, take a breath, and um, sort of consider our options. And we are really pleased and honored to have on the air this morning um, the uh, director, producer, and writer of this, wow, really um, well done yet um, haunting uh, story um, and stories that are depicted in this film, Always in Season. And, um, And right now, I think you're in New Orleans, aren't you? I'm actually in North Carolina. I just moved. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I thought your film was screening um, today in the New Orleans um, Film Festival. That's why I thought you might mm-hmm. be in New Orleans. Okay. It does start today. Yeah. I'll, be there. I'll actually be there on Monday and Tuesday. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, maybe uh, while I um, – get myself together here, get your bio. Maybe you could tell us about, about the film, um, Always in Season. You're going to be in San Francisco. We're going to be having a screening at the Roxy um, on um, October 23rd, and uh, and you're going to be um, be present as well as I think you're going to also be here for the uh, November 1st uh, screening as well. I will. I will. I'm excited. I, I used to live in the Bay Area in Berkeley, so it's really special to bring the film to theaters in San Francisco, and um, I rarely get to be in conversation with uh, Don Bernier, who's the editor and co-writer on the film. We rarely, mm-hmm. um, Don usually is talking with other editors, and I'm talking with other directors, and so it's a great thing mm-hmm. um, that I'll be in conversation with him on the 23rd, um, and Glenn Washington will moderate the host Snap Judgment. So it's a really um, exciting event, and it's a great opportunity to talk about the story, which um, began um, working on 10 years ago. I mm. researched and developed the project for a couple of years before I began filming in 2010 and um, was really filming in communities where lynchings happened, um, never never with the, um, uh, the interest of telling a historical film. It's always been a contemporary story for me. Um, it's really been about what these communities, um, the residents, 
intersectional violence um, that happened all across the U.S. And so um, I started filming in places like Monroe, Georgia, which is one of the cities featured in the film where a group of folks get together every year and reenact the lynching of two couples um, that happened in 1946 on the Morse Ford Bridge. And, um, and they do it for a number of reasons. They come together for a number of personal reasons, but the group um, um, really wants to make sure that the victims are never forgotten. And some of them believe that there may be perpetrators still living in the area. Um, and so it's communities like those uh, in, I, where I filmed, I filmed in Monroe for three years in a row um, and uh, was just about to, to wrap production when I learned of Lennon's case. Um, the case of a 17-year-old who was found hanging um, in 2014 in Blatonboro, uh, North Carolina. He was found, Lennon was found hanging from a swing set. And um, I couldn't imagine uh, what his mom was going through. I had uh, moved back home to my home state in Mississippi and knew of several other cases similar to Lennon's. And so I really understood uh, how pivotal it is to really look at the evolution of lynching violence um, and what it looks like now. And so um, tell Claudia's story, her fight for justice, um, really uh, connecting um, the threat of the past to the present with a lot of immediacy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, um, yeah, the film is, it's, it's I, I just finished watching it. So it's, it's almost it almost leaves one speechless, you know, as as the um, um, Lennon's mother, you know, tries to find out what happened to her son, um, you know, that that night. Um, you know, it's 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 called a suicide. Yet, you know, um, later on we see, you know, some of the uh, uh, evidence that comes from the undertaker, you know, that talks about, you know, what his body looked like and all that, that says, no, we don't think that was the case. And, wow, it's, it's 10 years. Wow. Um, you know, as the story unfolds, it's, and then you connect it to other stories, you know, similar stories that were allowed to, um, you know, you know, there was an FBI investigation and that was terminated, um, you know, because this is well, there was no um, there was no evidence of a foul play. You know, and and just one one case after another, and and this you know this really telling title to the to the film, always in season. It just it just keeps on coming up like a refrain as I as I watch the film, and listen to the story. Yeah. Unfortunately, it does. I um. Uh, out of the 5,000 um, documented cases of lynching, the nearly 5,000 documented cases, um, there have been less than 1% that have gone to trial for murder. Um, and so it does keep coming up. And until we really start to confront this history and start to look at the systems that propped up the violence and the systems that benefited from the violence um, and really start to um, dig deeper um, into restructuring them, um, it will continue to happen. And, and we see... Um, we see that same refrain going on now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, um, you're Jacqueline. Um, all of you are an independent filmmaker and immersive media producer with 15 years of experience in journalism and film. Your debut feature documentary, Always in Season, great way to begin, <laughs> uh, premiered in comp- competition at 
You're welcome. At the 2019 Sundance Film Festival and was awarded the Special Jury Prize for Moral Urgency. Uh, Jackie has also direct, co-directed the award-winning hour-long film Black to Our Roots, which broadcast on PBS in 2009. You have received artist grants and industry funding from Sundance Institute, Independent Television Service, Ford Foundation, Firelight Media, and more. You were recently awarded the Emerging Filmmakers of Color Award from IDA and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation. So tell us a little bit more about, um, wow, about why you do, um, you know, why do you tell stories, you know, like this? Why do you tell stories with film? What, what sort of brought you into this particular type of medium? Yeah, I absolutely uh, love filmmaking. I fell in love. Uh, I started out in still photography, and I fell in love with the power mm. of an image, not just to document the facts or the information about a situation, but to um, um, to take you into a moment so that you can experience that moment. Um, and so uh, I started out taking photographs with my son, who, by the way, was Lennon's age when I learned of um, Lennon's death. Um, mm. And I, I, I particularly connected uh, with Claudia um, around the fact that it, it, it must have been really um, unimaginable to find yourself in a situation in which you suspect that your child might have been lynched. Um, and, and so um, it was important for me in this film to give people an experiential understanding of the story and not just um, uh, information and not just um, education. And so the ability for, um, as a, as a um, filmmaker, to combine journalism, which is, you know, about fact gathering and analysis, um, and to combine that with cinema, which is um, a, a lot more experiential, um, is what really excites, excites me about making films. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, um, wow, that's really something if, you know, your own son was, um, the same age, um, you know, as Lennon and, yeah, it's, um, how, how did you, um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, this, this particular story and maybe, um, others that you've done, but this particular story, um, given what it is, um, you know, a young person, you know, his life ended at such such a important you know like time you know where so much is ahead of him, and yet his life is over, and just the way that it happened and um you know you really sort of take us into into the the the, the space you know so we we um we meet the family we meet his mother, we meet his big brother uh we meet his best friends um and and then in the midst of telling that story, you insert stories of historic, other historic um, lynchings that remain unresolved. And then to to make it even more visceral, there are these reenactments. There's this reenactment like I never heard of a lynching reenactment before. Yeah, it's the only one in the world that I know of, certainly the only one in the U.S., um, and um, the only reenactment of lynching. Um, And we really, um, Don and I really worked to 
uh, give the audience experience of what it's like to be there in the midst of it. Um, and the uh, reenactors have uh, come ac um, across controversy. Part of that controversy, they've come up against it. Part of that controversy is that people, um, there are parts of the story that uh, the reenactors portray that haven't been documented. And it's one of the things, you know, you talked about the coroner in Blatenboro earlier around Lennon's case. We saw certain signs that, it, that Lennon met violence. Um, and so um, often the coroner, the black coroner, or mortician, is the first person to come across a body um, in a way that documents um, evidence of violence. Um, that may not show up when the reporters land on the scene um, historically around lynchings or when um, the medical examiner or the, or the, um, um, or the um, police officers um, arrive on a scene and aren't necessarily inclined to document all the details of the violence. Often the black mortician um, is the person who, um, who has a lot of that information. Um, and who sees the body for the first time um, in a way that's more objective. Um, and so it's really this, I, the film was an opportunity to explore this question about um, the, what's more valid, documentation or people's understanding um, through oral history um, and through um, generational memory around the um, details of a story um, and the details of, of lynching violence. And so the reenactment serves as a way for folks in that community. Um, it's an organic expression of people's desire to tell the story as they know it. Um, Bobby Howard there, who was one of the first, first people to organize the reenactment, he spent years um, doing oral histories in that area and, and learning details about the lynching that, that had never been reported. Um, and so for me, that story is really um, uh, crucial to, to look at that, to look at, at um, what it means when a community um, has been traumatized and then has been made um, to be silent about that history, um, what are those uh, things that we're, that we're still living with? Mm -hmm. Right, right, yeah. And um, I uh, was taking lots of notes, but uh, I was just thinking about um, uh, someone that um, you uh, – you have um speaking um often you have some really wonderful um people that um you know show up show up in the film you know to sort of give us sort of background um like you know heather the uh the lawyer um the NAACP uh, attorney i believe um that, that talks she's about an attorney. Hmm? Oh, I, I just wanted to say that she's an attorney who um the NAACP brought on to pull together mm -hmm. um, evidence uh, to take to the FBI to get a case opened. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, she sort of sort of lets us know sort of what's going on with the case. And um, and I had never heard of, um, you know, this particular um, place um, in North Carolina, but then I'm I'm not an expert on, on Southern towns, but, you know, but Blakeman County and, uh, and, you know, just sort of like what's, what's it like there? Um, sort of, you know, the energy and you just think about this is 2019 yet, um, you know, this, this young person was, was killed um, what, a couple of years ago. And, and then you think about, you know, just going into the details of what, what is racial, racial terror 
healing, right? And you have, you know, um, Brian Stevenson um, interviewed, and, you know, he's the one that um, his organization um, cre- uh, founded or created the um, um, the, more, the, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. And and just, just the details of what happened, it's like, wow. I'm just thinking, whoa, this it's traumatizing watching the film, you know, just, just hearing about what happened to these different people and, and, and the, the telegram, the one where the telegram was sent by the NAACP to the, um, I guess, the sheriff or police department to protect um, this man who, was, who they knew was, was uh, at risk and nothing happened. And and then the details of the horrific, um, uh, I guess, um, killing us of this person. Um, I mean, he was mutilated and he was killed. People were tortured. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to hang him. But before that, you know, what happened before that? And then I think you mentioned, um, someone mentions that when Lennon was killed, it was, it was the anniversary of uh, one of the anniversaries, I'm not certain which one, of Emmett Till's. Uh, horrific killing. It was Lennon. Uh, Lennon's body was found on the 29th, and he was last seen on the 28th of August. And the 29th of um, August, um, and I believe it's. Uh, I don't want to. I want to say the wrong date, but the 28th of August was the anniversary of Emmett Till's death, and so um, it was uh, uh, alarming for people in terms of the timing of, uh, of finding his body hanging publicly, Lennon's body hanging publicly. It was alarming that it, uh, that it happened around the anniversary, and so there were questions, there were still questions about whether or not there was organized um, racial uh, violence and, um, and uh, activity from organized groups like the Klan um, in the area. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So tell us, tell us some more about about this place, and about yeah. about this this wonderful this woman, you know, his mother, who is not going to just let, you know, her son's death just go, uh, and his brother. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Blake is a, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from Mississippi, so um, mm-hmm. I know I understand the South. Um, and Blatonboro is um, is a very small town in the scope of small towns. Um, there is a city of 1,700 people, um, and it's also um, uh, geographically isolated. It's about an hour off the interstate um, once you um, once you exit the interstate, and I almost always lose a cell phone um, signal when I get to Blatonboro. It's how I know that I've I've made it to town. Um, and so it is um, also uh, Claudia's um, hometown. It's where Claudia grew up. And so Claudia brought Lennon um, back to uh, Blatonboro from Virginia when Lennon was in middle school, um, about uh, the age of 12 or so. And, um, and she brought Lennon back because it was her home. So, so I like to... Um, I, I really uh, worked hard to show the complexities of what it means to live in the South. And this was a, uh, Blatonboro is a, a great example for what it's like to live in the South. And, and it's a microcosm for what it likes to live in the country, uh, in the entire country, is that you have people there who are warm and friendly and 
you know, waitresses who uh, will call you honey, um, and just this uh, hospitality and this cordialness that you get in the South. And at the same time, you have these current imbalances in um, power that, that go across race, as well as this historic racial terrorism, all against a landscape that's really beautiful. And so... There's, um, so it's, uh, it was really important for us to depict the tension around that um, that is really in every moment that you live in the South and, and the complexities of that. Again, it was Claudia's home, and yet this happened to her child there. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, the, it's a, a, a microcosm of what's going on across this country is that we are um, embedded in contradictions all the time um, that, are, that create tension. Um, and that um, that are unsettling, um, and so the, you mentioned the the documentation, the the invitation to the lynching. Um, oh, and, mm-hmm. and also the NAACP request um, to um, the governor in Florida to give aid to Claude Neal, who was lynched in 1934, and that 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 um, story is depicted in the film as well. Um, Danny Glover reads those, uh, that documentation, and, and as I mentioned earlier, he also reads uh, an invitation to a lynching. People often think about there's this myth that the violence happened out of, um, out of this passion, and it happened in the middle of the night and backwards um, by, by often people who are categorized as backwards or backwards people. But um, lynchings happened mostly in the middle of the day. They were highly organized with um, the knowledge of and or the participation of the top officials in town. Um, and, and they often happened on the courtho- courthouse lawn. Um, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's one of the experts in the film, she's the NAACP, she's the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and also the niece mm-hmm. of Gwen Eiffel. Um, Sherilyn's book oh. is called On the Courthouse Lawn. Mm-hmm. She's a, she's a, Sherilyn is, uh, was immediately, um, I found her immediately impressive, and and, um, and I could see a lot of that comes out of her, um, her family ties. Um, but really, uh, she's done really excellent work around lynchings in Maryland, and her book is called On the Courthouse Lawn, that um, mm-hmm. says exactly that, is that um, most of the town uh, knew when a lynching happened, and, and, and they were highly organized. And so it was important for me to show the documentation in that way with Danny Glover, um, serving as narrator. Mm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I was wondering how many um, how many lynchings um, do you um, talk about in in the uh, in the film, and and then I want you to also um, talk more about the reenactment and uh, and how difficult it was for um, for the organizer to be able to find you know, white people that would play, you know, the perpetrators and, and the story. And, and it was really great the way, you know, the people that did participate, you know, those stories that you followed, those interviews were really riveting, particularly the one uh, about the woman who was two years old when her father took, you know, his family to a lynching. Yeah, so I'll, I'll back up and, and talk about the 5,000 mm-hmm. uh, documented lynchings. Um, I just wanted to mm-hmm. acknowledge that I believe that the number is closer to 15,000, that um, those don't include 15,000 documents. Wow. Mm-hmm. As many as we wow. as many. Because they don't include the, mm. the bodies that were never found um, and mm. um, the bodies that went um, unidentified. 
Um, and so, um, they, and they also happened in every state before across the country. So it's certainly, lynching was certainly um, uh, uh, predominantly occurring in the South, but it happened in, in um, almost every state in this country. And there's a, um, a photograph um, that we use in the film. It's one of the photographs from the Without Sanctuary Lynching Photography in America exhibit of a lynching in Waco, Texas. Um, 1916, uh, Jesse Washington um, was lynched there, and um, 10 by 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 different accounts, 10 to 15,000 men, women, and children came out to that one single lynching. And then, if you think about one, how seminal that violence is in the community, how even if you didn't come out to watch a lynching, when 15,000 people in your city are cheering, and you can hear the the screams of the victims, and you um, certainly know that your neighbors um, have gone, even when you don't agree with it, and even when you are, even when you decide to stay at home, you're still impacted um, by that. And so multiply that by five to 15,000 um, instances um, across the U.S. And you can see really how, um, how lynching has really shaped this country. Um, and we're still uh, living amidst um, the fallout of the violence. Um, the reenactors uh, are um, a great group of people. Some, most of them are from um, Atlanta. None of them are from Monroe, by the way. The folks in Monroe, mm. um, for the okay. most part, when I was filming there up until 2014, weren't uh, very supportive of the reenactment. And so um, Bobby Howard started out getting family members um, to do the reenactment um, because, and they were all. Uh, there were uh, white folks who were supposed to play cl- play Klansmen who backed out, um, but they were all under threat, uh, the black reenactors and the white reenactors early on, of losing their jobs and also threat of death. Um, and so the white, because the, the white reenactors backed out, um, Bobby had his family members pay, pay the Klansmen, and that's another point of controversy um, for some folks uh, who believe that, um, that it wasn't uh, um, an accurate portrayal. Um, of what went on, um, but um, but uh, again, it, it, the portrayals are backed up around uh, documentation and also around uh, oral histories about about what happened at the time. Um, but there are uh, the white reenactors uh, since uh, the reenactments have been going on since 2005, um, and so from the very beginning, um, it had been difficult to get uh, white folks to to play the Klansmen um, in those events. And uh, there's a group of people like Walter um, Reeves who played Tommy Talmadge and Olivia Taylor who played um, one of his supporters, um, a, a group of reenactors who are um, committed to telling the story and who have personal connections to the history. Um, Olivia's father was a leader of the KKK in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. And Olivia had been interested early on just because she heard about the reenactments and realized that they, the, um, she wanted to make sure that their portrayal of uh, those costumes of what Lansman would have worn at that time um, was authentic. And so she just um, reached out to consult about that and then ended up playing one of the roles. And so Olivia um, talks about um, in the film um, what that was like for her, um, being a daughter of a clan, um, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, having witnessed the lynching when she was a child, and, and so um, it really talks about her personal commitment to get this story out and giving healing to the community through the work that they're doing in the last. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, our our time is almost up, but I was just um wanted to ask you if you could um <clears throat> um before you talk about your team because I want you to talk a little bit more about about the team, how you you know sort of pull this together because uh, it's it's really a remarkable work and it's amazing that this is your first feature. Like wow, what a what a what a great Thank level you. of of excellence you know to come in you know with with this document. I mean, <laughs> oh, wow, wow, that's. Certainly um, has you know it's historic, but it has you know current resonance. And I was just thinking about um, the recent um, police uh, shootings and killings of of um, people of African descent. I'm thinking about you know Baltham John, um, who was you know the policewoman in in Dallas said she thought she was in her own apartment, and and then you know you know from a tip, um, these you know policemen in Fort Worth. Um, uh, don't announce themselves and and shoot um, this young woman, um, Atiana Jefferson, through her her bedroom window as she's playing with her nephew. And I'm thinking, like, you know, trauma is something that comes up, you know, a lot, you know, around, you know, the trauma of the family, you know, that, you know, generational because you know there's no um, there's no resolution. So, and that story about the mother whose son was killed, who, um, I, I don't remember her name, you could call her name, and she would um, drink moonshine and smoke tobacco, and she would just have to just, you could see how, you know, the grief, you know, just, just sort of possessed her, and she would leave her children and then come go away and then come back. But, you know, there, there was no resolution um, uh, because her poor child was, was killed, and it was, you know, um, uh, as you as you mentioned in um um you know in the title of of the work you know something that was always in season you know like yeah it's this this um this history has been multi generational trauma for everybody that's involved in communities as I mentioned mm-hmm. whether you mm-hmm. were white and they are cheering the violence on certainly um if you were black in these communities the level of terrorism is fear and inequality that it instilled was enormous. Um, in addition to uh, folks um, who were um, not necessarily condoning the violence, everyone was still impacted um, by it. Mm-hmm. And so we find ourselves living in the midst of um, this, the residue of this violence. And so um, the deaths um, that have been um, really um, revealed by cell phone video um, the deaths that have been the police shootings and the killings, the vigilante killings um, of folks uh, since before um, uh, Trayvon Martin up until um, um, most recently, uh, Tatiana Jefferson's um, uh, uh, killing by a police officer that certainly seems unwarranted, unjustified. Um, and uh, it's outrageous. It's, it's outraging. She uh, was a fellow alum um, they both graduated from Xavier University, and there are many ways that I felt connected with all of these deaths. Mm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. it is um, it is disturbing. It's alarming. It's infuriating. All of the the emotions that I saw people on the ground um, experiencing as they were confronting this history, like um, pain and anger and fear and guilt and shame. All of those emotions 
are, 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 are uh, many of them are emotions that I experienced as I was making the film over 10 years. Um, and they're the emotions that we're all dealing with in the midst of this um, residual violence. And um, the, uh, the inspiring thing for me is that there were, is that I saw people on the ground um, confronting those emotions and, and, and um, despite them and despite um, even more intimate connections um, than I have, uh, folks like Claudia, whose son it was, um, uh, that found hanging, that they, despite um, the trauma of it, were still courageously um, looking at how to acknowledge the victims, um, what they could do to repair the damage, um, what they can do for justice, um, and to bring healing to the community was really inspiring for me. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Over the process of making the film over, over 10 years, I really had the privilege of working with um, an incredible crew. Um, Patrick Sheehan um, is the cinematographer who, um, who shot uh, a lot of that really beautiful um, footage around the Claude Neal lynching in Marianne, Georgia, and and also in Bladenboro. Rodrigo Dorfman um, has been a cinematographer and editor on the project. Um, uh, Ose Ased, it was a, an incredible um, privilege to work with a composer and a sound designer. Bob Edwards was a sound designer out of Skywalker Sound. Um, and so to be able to work with them on the score and on the sound design um, in a way that, that uh, was deeply collaborative, um, and they, and my entire team um, from Multitude that's headed by Jessica Devaney um, and Anya Ralph, um, that uh, they have been uh, inc- a group of incredibly talented folks um, who have been really committed to getting the story out as well. And so it's been, um, uh, as I said, I love filmmaking, and it, it, the, the process of making um, the film has been challenging, but those, challenging, uh, those challenges have been the thing that really um, – has motivated me uh, to really figure out how to craft a story um, that is resonant um, and that uh, accurately portrays what's going on historically and what's going on now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and so how how does um, last question how how does you know such um, uh, a project sort of change you? Um, you know, as as a uh, as an artist and and as a citizen, um. it it changes me in every way. I don't um, when when I my my work is a um, I don't compartmentalize it. It's very much a part of who I am, um, and when I create, it comes out of my um, everything about me. And so, and I find that one of the things I learned, one of the biggest lessons I learned, I tell people all the time, particularly um, uh, folks who are um, people of color and women um, who are looking to come into the industry about how important our voices are. Um, I'd seen Toni Morrison uh, early on. There are many people who who, um, were encouraging to me uh, as I was, uh, you know, from a child until now. And one of them was Toni Morrison, who I'd seen um, at a, um, at an event, I can't remember what event, but she said that. She said mm. that your voice is important. Um, she was saying this to the crowd, but I, I, I felt like she was talking directly to me. Your voice is important, and you know the stories that are important to tell. And um, and so it's it's incumbent upon us to cultivate the craft to be able to tell those stories ourselves. And it's the thing that I like to encourage um, other filmmakers. Um, and one of the things that I learned more deeply about what that means is that 
when you create out of your the vulnerable the vulnerable areas of who you are, the most vulnerable parts of who you are, um, the film becomes uh, most powerful. And so to um, so I I learned to dig deep um, into um, into uh, understanding the craft and dig deep into understanding myself and the other people, um, especially the other people who um, are featured in the film and these communities and understand this country um, better. Um, and so it's been a, an incredible journey. We, um, after premiering at Sundance, and we're still, she mentioned at the New Orleans Film Festival, we'll be at the Milwaukee um, Film Festival soon. So we've been mm-hmm. to, um, the film is screened in more than 40 festivals and we're continuing to do that. But we've also, um, been releasing the film in theaters. Uh, we started in New York and LA and Atlanta. And starting mm-hmm. today, actually, we're, um, the film will be in, um, in AMC theaters um, in Dallas oh. and Detroit, mm-hmm. here in Durham, North Carolina, which I'm really excited about. I'll be at that screening um, later today. Mm-hmm. Um, and in DC for a week um, from the 18th to the 25th um, in AMCs. And then we'll have our run um, in uh, Roxy at the Roxy in San Francisco, and I'll be back. Mm-hmm. I'll be there on the 23rd, as I mentioned in conversation with Don Bernier, and we'll be back on the 1st of November. Um, and it's been um, uh, a really, uh, again, the, the Bay Area is where I first started to work on the project, and it's where um, I started to gain support. And so, I've been really fortunate to have organizations and funders from the very beginning who've understood the value. Um, of the film and who've been partners um, on this project um, from everywhere from folks to from um, Chicken and Egg Pictures and Catapult Film Fund um, uh, Mm -hmm. to um, ITVS, Independent Television Service, um, and all of those organizations are out of the Bay Area, um, to Firelight Media um, on the East Coast, Stanley Nelson's um, uh, Documentary Lab, um, and also the production company um, that the lab comes through. Um, and uh, Ford Foundation and um, Independent Documentary Association. And so tons of folks have um, really um, helped to get this film out. And so this theatrical run, and then we'll have a, um, a broadcast on PBS on February 24th, uh, 2020, which I'm really excited about on the Independent Lens series. Um, this, all, all of these ways that we're sharing the film um, has been an opportunity to really celebrate um, what the community has really um, made uh, this, this story and this project possible. Mhm. Wow, yeah, yeah. I want to let our audience know that uh, the Roxy Theater is located at 3117 16th Street in San Francisco, and the film, Always in Season, will be um, screening there from October 23rd um, through November 7th, um, so um, in the big Roxy and in the little Roxy. So, and Wanda, um, I just want to—I I, I just want to say, um, just to to correct one thing, is that we'll have an advanced oh. screening on the 23rd of October, and then we'll bring the film oh. back um, for a week from the first of um, Friday, the first of November, until October okay. seventh. Okay. So the October 23rd is just—it's um, a special screening, and then the the uh, the run starts on the first. It does, and, and the tweet there is okay. um, a preview that's open to the public. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks for correcting that, because I would have thought, oh, I can come on the 24th, too. <laughs> right. I don't, I, don't, okay. I don't want you to sit in your seat and, and look around and try to figure out what's going on. So, um, yeah. It's, it, 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 <laughs> oh, 
We're really excited about that. In every city where we've um, screened the um, film in festivals and theaters, um, including the Bay Area and certainly um, Berkeley and Oakland as well, is that we plan to bring it back for impact and engagement work. And so we, we're planning to, um, we've already connected with organizational partners like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Constitutional Rights and here um, an organization called Southerners on the Ground and the ACLU, national and regional and local organizations, to bring the film into communities around the country um, where we can have really deep dive conversations um, into these issues and to discuss um, um, issues of reparations, um, to offer tools for healing um, in, in a facilitated environment in which people can start to really um, unpack this history and begin to explore specifically what's meaningful um, for communities um, around uh, what can be done um, for justice mm -hmm. and to start to imagine what justice can look like because um, uh, we can see that currently we can't uh, necessarily count on um, a, uh, we can't count on a conviction or even an indictment um, from the criminal justice system. And so what are the ways that we, um, all of us, and particularly people of color, um, what are the ways that we can imagine um, what repair looks like and what are the things that we can all do um, uh, in our communities to, um, to acknowledge the victims and to look at how um, we can um, work together to strengthen our communities and to, and to address the, the damage that's been done and, and is still occurring. Mm -hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, have you are you working on another project yet? Have you are you thinking about your next film? I'm I'm always thinking about films. I'm I'm developing um, about five <laughs> projects right now. Um, oh my. And, uh, yeah, and really, I'm very interested in um, in stories about Black girls and Black women, um, and oh. in stories that are centered in the South. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's kind of my focus. Um, very broadly right now, but um, am working on multiple projects and and really excited create, creating. Um, there's a, a lot of work in different areas around filmmaking, and certainly um, right now getting it out into theaters and and doing work with our impact team. Um, by the way, our um, the uh, impact producer on our team is Monifa Vendelli, who is vice president of Moms Rising, and Carmen Dixon is our impact coordinator. Um, and so to have uh, this uh, team. Um, and to do this work is really important, and it's also very crucial that I continue um, to create. And so I'm looking at um, getting out, uh, or certainly getting along the way, um, several projects. Oh, that's really good. Well, congratulations on on this wonderful Thank work, you. and uh, yeah, Thank I look forward to um, seeing you um, in the. Uh, at the Roxy, um, yeah, I wondered yeah. about that 510 um, prefix. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, the That's great right. Bay Area support. Yeah, so, you know, folks yeah, would, absolutely. wow, you know, it's, it's really great that, you know, you have the time, you know, to um, to, to do, um, you know, and the interest to um, uh, to do research and, and bring a story to um, to the community, to our community and to other communities that's not talked about because, you know, mm -hmm. of of the, the, the pain that this brings up as well as um the uh you know, the knowledge that with evidence that, you know, things are not well here, you know, in this country mm -hmm. around around race and um 
and justice, and there's so much violence that people of African descent experience, have experienced, and continue to experience. Um, and something needs to be done about that. You can't just continue. Um, and so, yeah, it's really great, you know, when we have these wonderful documents like this one uh, to be able to, you know, add to um, the arsenal um, and 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 also to use as as organizing tools. And uh, and then to Absolutely. meet, you know, Absolutely. yeah, and then also to meet, you know, these wonderful heroic, um, you know, people like Claudia and her son and you know, um, Doctor Reverend Doctor Barber and and you know other people that are are still you know sort of working you know in you know in lifting these names and to uh, to bringing justice you know even if the the uh, FBI said that um, is closing the case the case is not closed. That's right, and and it's important for us to explore uh, where we have agency and to look at how we can. Um, I, I like to remind uh, people of color in particular that we have an intimate understanding of each other in our communities. And so there are places where we can show up to each other and to look at what we can do um, for repair as well as push um, other folks and, and these systems um, to really show up in the way that, they're, um, that, that they're, they should be required to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, take good care, and I uh, hope you have wonderful screenings, um, you know, before we, we see you here um, uh, in San Francisco for that special screening on the 23rd, and then when you return <laughs> on on November 1st. And, uh, yeah, and, and good luck with, you know, these, these projects that you're uh, investigating presently and can't, can't hear enough you know, about black women, you know, as far as those stories. There's so many that aren't told. So I'm really happy that you are interested in that. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity, and I hope to see you at the Roxy on the 23rd. Okay, super. Oh, and why don't you give, give the website for your for your film so that people can read more about it and, and follow you and things like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can learn about where we're screening um uh, in theaters by the by the end of, or by the beginning of December, we'll be at other theaters. You can also um, get a reminder about our PBS broadcast on the on the 24th of February. Um, that's coming up, um, and uh, and just more information on the film and updates on um, what's going on with Claudia. In addition to, if there are any organizations that folks think that we should bring the film back to that could benefit from deep dive conversations into racial justice and reconciliation, you can go to our website at alwaysinseasonfilm.com. Okay, super. Thank you. All righty. Will you take good care? You too. Thanks so much, Rhonda. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. You too. Mm-hmm. So we are going to um, play... Uh, We're going to play um, <clears throat> Babatunde uh, Lee's African Tas- Tapestry Prayer for a Continent, and then we're going to rebroadcast uh, an interview with um, Adia Tamar Whitaker, um, who is in town with um, her bluesico, um, and it is really awesome. I was able to uh, to attend opening night last night at ODC Theater in San Francisco, and it is a wonderful, wonderful journey. Um, ah, wow, that really um, 
sort of parallels the journey that we take um, in this film that we've been talking about. So you come to the Bluesicle, see the Bluesicle this week, and then next week um, go to the um, uh, the preview screening um, of Always in, in Season, and you'll see some resonance of some of the same themes, um, themes about agency, things about safety, and um, and, you know, we think about sort of what options we have and, you know, this wonderful works of art, you know, let us know um, that we are not alone um, in our quest uh, and demand for justice. And uh, and so, yeah, so here's the, uh, um, the song, <laughs> uh, African Task Free, Prayer for a Continent.
Fletcher's grandness, the heir to his big bandness, was a master of Rob to forever lay out the blue wonderfulness of the orchestra, Duke Ellington, whose greatness transcends all trends. Duke told Max, don't let them call your music jazz, because they can make anything that. What prophecy, cold and true? Why, they can say what your boy, what's-his-name, Elevated G, is playing is that. You did. But then, what's-his-name was the king of jazz? And what's the other dude was the king of swing? And we now up to in that alley, banging on them tin pans. They called it swing. But they meant a noun, not a verb. Never could get the verb in it. Remember all them ladies and men, masters and mistresses of the verbal thing? Ethel Waters in a blue, new American classical popular song. And Billy, who reached the deepest tear in our heart. And Ella, all flying off them wonderful bands who carried our hearts, our meaning in their songs. The royalty like Duke and the Count of Basie. The lady who made her alliance with the real American president, Mr. Young. And you know they swung. Bean, the mighty hawk, taught us all how Lewis sounded on another horn. And the cats in their band, Duke's people at the top of the steeple, Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, Cooney Williams, Cat Anderson, Paul Gonzalez, Ben Webster, and other greats who morphed into another age. If the 20s was the jazz age, then the 30s, the Great Depression. People seemed like they got skinny. But the age of swing... From all those songs, the world was looking for love, but it seemed like there wasn't any. Goose stepping in Europe, pain in Spain. They was painting mustaches on the Mona Lisa and putting a commode in the museum. Had civilization stopped? My man Helene said they couldn't stop bebop, and they won't stop hip-hop. Bird blue, dizzy new. Max carried our original earth to this place where we grew. Bud smiled, and here come miles. There was a bee and a bop. Just another beat, another bee, and another act. Where the is and the unis cohabit the same frame. But the sound was a verb, not a noun, unless you couldn't Congo style really get down our share shake. But then the could did, and then them original hipsters appeared with the Vance and the Bowie O'Rooney. Said you gotta have them black notes, actually they is blue. I want my fist flatted. And you gotta have the drum where we and the music come from. Dig, that word was the first I heard. It all can't be on paper for the proper syncopation. You gotta have improvisation. We're gonna take them tired chords and make our own songs, our own stories. Otherwise, it's too dull. It don't swing. It ain't hip. We said we wanted wild, crazy, frantic. We wanted it to be exactly like us, gone from the square world or out to lunch. My man Symphony said from the jazz corner of the world, it sounded like there was never anything before us hip as Birdland and it's lullaby where I first heard the divine one. Sassy say, you're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy for a uh, uh, girl like me. And we heard of Fats Navarro and Fat Girl and Kenny Clark and Coog and Long Tall Dexter Gordon and Stan Getz and Zoot Sims. We heard the hippest people in the world. But remember, when you go out, somebody's going to try to bring you back in. Bop was too hot, the anti-bop squad said. Too fast, too crazy. Crazy, we said. The counterattack was to bring it back. Y'all been out to lunch too long. Whether it was swing or bebop, this is dream. If you wanted a cop, you had to hit the street. No road out of the jungle, that's 52nd Street. Where the Charleston hit the New York docks. 12th Avenue was a shock. From Angola to the Gullahs in South Carolina, got the first thing smoke, went up to New York. Charleston, James P. wrote. Greet those who landed in the Devil's Northern House. Hell's Kitchen, to be exact. San Juan Hill, 
Monk and Vinnie Carter's home Where Lincoln Center sits still That's right We on the only money that ain't white But what we was trying to say When it got too hot Some folks tipped away From that street I think it was the heat Last scene heading west They next address It was cool, really cool Some said calm down Miles said get down Stan heard, Clue, Budo, Jerry heard, Lee heard, John Lewis heard, Gil Evans heard, Pancho Haygood heard, they gave birth to the school, the real birth of the cool. When the memory of the hip starts to slip, the gorgeous blue, the funk we knew, they're gonna bend their knees and raise it back from the mood indigo that flows out of the black. What was bad could be bad, much, much better than that. Thus spoke that. So when Cool started to fool with my man Jojo's soul, he went out and put the church in it. Where the Negroes' eyes be rolling back in their head and start speaking some stuff ain't never been said. A dude named Buhena played them drums like he was insane. I'm from the blue continent of dark under your heartbeat. Dudes named Horace drugged the funky gospel into the joints, hollering, let me see what you do with your shovel. And the Holy Ghost popping his tambourine, chick-a-ching, razzle in the room. That's nasty when you bring Africa and the Lord in like that. He wanted a messengers from the Holy Ghost Mau Mau Baptist Church. And they got a message from Kenyon, 125th Street. The University of Blakey. The Academy of, well, it might have seemed like that, but it really was this. Where you could dig Hank Mobley and listen nobly to the man who called the uncrowned king, Kenny Dorham. But always so many others came to fill up the space with names of that school. Clifford Brown, Luke Donaldson, Percy He, Donald Bird, Jack McLean, Lee. Morgan, Benny Goldson, all the way to Billy Harper and Wynton Marcellus. What all that was was the saving of the deep historical bonds, the blues, the ancient call and response from across the trees and through the woods so you know where I am and I wait for your response. Our blue life memory all the way back across the world. The zigzag of chance, the improv, and fix however to the mighty drum, the rhythm of life, what has no beat cannot stay. What was called hard bop was something to wake us up again to the rhythm of ourselves. Max and Brownie, along with Buhena, helped bring the fire back. The post-cool smoke fanned through the wings of the great bird, but now the heavy motion would be by train. We call that band of miles the Hydrogen Bomb and Switchblade Band. Paul and Red, Cannonball, the Funkus, Mad Philly Joe and Train, the monster with the horn. Actually, Miles' great band was but a preface to another awesome being. Trains, Coy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, Eldon Jones. But Train had to pass through the sphere of Theolonius to get deep into the mysterioso of the funk, leaving the world of the merely hip for the monkishly profound. Monk and Train at the five spot opened the new world of other than where you've been. Let me tell you, I was there. Train didn't even know the arrangements. He sounded like a stranger. But in a minute, Train was in it, and the whole building moved and pulled away. Little Rudy Tootie, jackying in Monk's moods. So around midnight, the new music came. We never was the same. By the time they got from the Bowery to Carnegie Hall, must have been time for something next stop new. Even a Pharaoh, an Ornette, an Albert, a Sun Ra fell by. They heard trains cry. Monks blew inside. A new world welcomed those with ears to hear. Uh, so that voice was Amiri Baraka with uh, Billy Harper in Knowledge of Self. And again, um, this evening, I think the uh, there's a talk at 6.30 um, at ODC uh, between Adia Tamar uh, Whitaker, um, choreographer, 
composer, costume designer, who's um, Have No Fear, a bluesico, which is an undoing spell that wants to untie all the knots that choke the future. Again, it is marvelous. Um, it's at ODC tonight and tomorrow. Those shows are at 8 o'clock, but tonight there is a conversation, and I believe the conversation starts at 6 or 6.30. So you want to call the uh, ODC um, uh, dot dance um, or just ODC, um, maybe dot org. <laughs> let me see what the extension is. Uh, no, it's ODC dot dance, and let me see if it's ODC. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Yeah, and and find out um, the details on that because, like I said, I'm not certain what time the um, the talk is, but it is tonight, and it's going to be phenomenal. And for those um, who are in the area, um, we lost a, a really great person recently. Um, she made her transition, uh, Dr. Nancisi uh, Caillou. And today at 11 a.m., there is going to be um, a uh, a church uh, funeral home um, program at 11 o'clock. And let me give you the details. Um, it's at the 7th Avenue Missionary Baptist Church, and that church is located at... Uh, let me give you the details. Oh, here we are. The um, church is located. Oh, darn. <laughs> I was looking to see if I have it, um, the location, but um, I'm not seeing it. But you can look it up. It's um, it's in Oakland, <clears throat> and, and uh, again, it's the 7th Avenue Missionary Baptist Church at 11, 11. And then this evening at 6 p.m. at the Green Lining Building, which is in downtown Oakland on 14th Street, uh, there's going to be a traditional um, home going for her. And uh, Dr. Caillou is, um, uh, I'm not sure if she's the founder or one of the founders of Wajumbe Dance um, Company and uh, Wajumbe um, Center, which is um, now the African American Art and Culture Complex. So Wajumbe, I think, was one of the founding organizations of that particular institution. And um, yeah, if, if you're anywhere in the Bay, definitely um, we should honor honor um, the transition of of our dear dear um, sister um, who was who held it down literally for African culture here in the Bay Area. And um, she, I think, um, was one of the sponsoring organizations of the uh, Orisha Conference that happened here um, in the Bay Area. I think it was in San Francisco a while ago. They still talk about it, had people coming here from all over the world. And when I was in Brazil, in Bahia, um, the uh, director of the institution, one of the main institutions there, which name is escaping me, um, he talked about that, and he said, we would love to come again um, because uh, it was, you know, really phenomenal. So, anyway, I wanted to let you know about that. And also wanted to let people know about <clears throat> the uh, the 75th Jubilee, Jubilee anniversary of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. And uh, tomorrow there is a Dorsey O. Blake Forum for Social Transformation, which is going to feature some really powerful conversations with some 
uh, uh, I guess, established um, uh, uh, change makers as well as some uh, younger um, change makers and uh, like Desiree Fontenot and um, and and Noni Sessions. She's a little bit older than than Desiree, and then um, Carl Anthony and um, Gus Newport and Kevin uh, Bayouk. They are going to be um, um, featured speakers. Uh, Noni Sessions is with East Bay Permanent Real Estate Co- Cooperative, Carl Anthony, Breakthrough Communities, Kevin Bayouk, Project Drawdown, Lift and Lift Economy, Desiree Fontenot, Movement Generation, and Gus Newport, Community Development, and he's a former mayor of the city of Berkeley. And the evening, in the evening, there's going to be a dramatic presentation, First Steps Toward the Dream, the letters of co-founders Alfred Fisk and Howard Thurman. That's going to be awesome. And there, it's a free event. All you need to do is um, show up, but it'd be great because they're going to be feeding people on both dates, uh, Saturday and Sunday, to RSVP at fellowshipsf.org. And then on Sunday, um, there's going to be the annual convocation honoring um, a person who opposed the vision of um, uh, Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman and his legacy. And I don't have that person's name in front of me, but if you go to the website, you can uh, find out more about the convocation, which is Sunday at 3 p.m. There's no um, morning service and the all-day wonderful um, Dorothy O. Blake Forum for Social Transformation. And I also want to mention that tomorrow at the Movement uh, Center um, in Oakland, downtown, not downtown, excuse me, west in North Oakland, 4400 Market Street, um, from 12 to 2, there um, it's going to be a sort of storytelling of, of women who are formerly incarcerated. Um, and you probably heard of StoryCorps, you know, sort of setting up booths, capturing these stories. Well, this is um, this this is going to be. Um, I don't know. I think they've been in other places uh, in California and maybe in the country, but. On Saturday, you have the opportunity to to hear some stories of change and transformation um, in the East Bay um, at the Movement Center, 4400 Market Street, um, and it's a free event. And uh, yeah, you better meet some women um, who can tell you about you know tell you stories about their lives and and uh, and 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 life after. You know, incarceration. So that should be really wonderful. So we're going to play this interview we had with Adia, and um, and then I'm going to try to um, get it together and and play uh, interview with uh, Doctor uh, Reverend Doctor Dorsey Blake, where he's talking about um, just briefly um, the 75th uh, anniversary jubilee uh, of this wonderful institution. The fellowship for the fellowship, the church for the fellowship of all peoples, um, Doctor uh, Reverend Doctor Howard Thurman's Church in San Francisco, really unique institution, unparalleled in the country or the world, perhaps. Oops, <laughs> wrong tab. Here we are. Here's idea.
Well, we were supposed to be starting with uh, <laughs> um, with the uh, Giant Trinity, but oh well, we'll just get started and try it again a little later. We are so excited to have Adia Tamar Whitaker in the studio to talk about um, the uh, Ashe Dance Theater Collective's West Coast premiere of Have No, that's K in parentheses, N-O apostrophe, and then W, Have No Fear, a Bluesicle. And that's going to be October 17th through 19th. And Adia um, uh, Tamar Whitaker is artistic director of this 19-year-old Brooklyn-based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective. And it's performed contemporary dance, vernacular movement, Afro-Haitian and Haitian dance in the United States and abroad for 17 years. Like, oh, my goodness, where did the time fly, right? Adia, right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, like amazing! You're getting ready to have your 20th anniversary next year. Like, wow! Awesome, I know awesome. it's been a long time. It's been a long mm-hmm. time of doing this work. Yeah, and you've been traveling all throughout the world. You know, in the uh, African diaspora and elsewhere, Haiti or Haiti, Cuba, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ghana, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And when you're there, um, uh, you both study and teach dance, and you received your MFA in dance from Hollins University, which is in Yeah, Virginia. I just completed that. I just completed Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lot of hard work, but I made it through. Yeah. Not really an <laughs> academic type of uh, person, but, you know, mm-hmm. I just had to get my freedom papers, some more freedom papers. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And Virginia, you know, um, Sort of honoring the 400th anniversary of of the Commonwealth, uh, you know, entrance into um, you know this particular hemisphere as uh, a a place that had African people, you know, as possessions. Um, so that was in August. And so, where's Hollands in relationship to um, oh, uh, Hampton? I you know I don't know where it is in relationship to Hampton, but Ho- Hollins was an old plantation, so it's what? just a deep yeah. It was an old plantation, and so the people, the descendants of the Africans that lived on that plantation and and worked as enslaved Africans still live on the land and are the groundskeepers, and they work in the cafeteria, and you can visit this like the graveyard of a family. So I think it's the Locke family. They have their mm-hmm graves in one place and then they have the graves of their enslaved Africans there as well. So Hollands was deep. I could I didn't get over to the graveyards because it was just such such a journey for me. But um mm-hmm. just being on the land where Africans were enslaved and everybody knows it and then I guess it turned into a spa at some point. And then after mm-hmm. that, since Hollands is a un- women's university, there were mm-hmm. The young women that attended there were allowed to have a young black woman as their kind of helper to help them, I don't know, carry their books or just, I don't know, just basically work for them. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of an interesting kind of strangeness that was also going on there. And it also is on indigenous land. We have to also Mm -hmm. remember that before all Mm -hmm. of our ancestors got there, it was indigenous land. So there's a lot of 
strong, like, psychic and spiritual energy just on the campus of Holland because it's really old. And in the middle of the campus, there's a big, you know, like a big circle with a cross in the middle. So for me, it's a Dikenga. It's a big Congolese, you know, cosmogram in the middle yeah. of the quad with four houses on each side. So there's lots of energy there. And also when I was I, uh, one of the parts of, big parts of Have No Fear, um, I refer to Margaret Wise Brown's book, Good Night Moon, the children's book. And so yeah. there was this big ballroom on campus that had this big green carpet. And every time I'd go in the room, I'd be like, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And I'd get all excited. But there wasn't a whole lot of parents there. So it didn't really mean as much to my cohort as it did to me. But every time I would go in that room, I would just, like, even under my breath, I would recite this, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And one day I went to the student union and I saw her book in the student union. I'm like, oh, my God, this book has been a part of my life since I've had children. I've had to read it for eight years. I memorized it. And I was like, do you have mm-hmm. children's books on campus? And they said, no, we just have her book because she's an alumni. And so mm-hmm. I went back wow. and I looked at some more information to find out if she had been in the room that I would mm-hmm. go into and have this urge to say lines from her book. And it turned out that at the time she went to school there, it was a cafeteria. So she was absolutely in that space. So mm-hmm. that's one of the, the like kind of connective tissues that, that I was like, okay, let me figure out why this dead white woman is talking to me because mm-hmm. she's an ancestor as well. And I need to figure out what she, what her, what her connection to my work is because Every time I'd go in that space, I'd, I'd say those lines, and then when it was time to pick our the place we would perform for our thesis, I was like, I don't want to do it in the theater. I need to do it in that ballroom because it was like a gazebo ceiling, a big, shiny chandelier, and I don't even know if my ancestors would have been allowed in that space to be in service of all the very, very dead white people on the walls because the whole space was surrounded by pictures of the Locke family, all these white elders and scholars. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that my family would not have been allowed in that room at all if it were not in service. Um, so I was like, well, because I know that we probably weren't allowed in this room, I'm about to do this right here underneath your shiny <laughs> crystal chandelier on your green carpet in front of all, and it gave such a, a, a backdrop to the choreography and the singing and what we were doing. Because, you know, we got drums up there, we were barefoot, we had rocks, but it wasn't, it was definitely not what we would have been able to do between the 15th and the 19th, 18th century, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, this is so amazing. Yeah, wow, place is everything, isn't it? Right, right. It totally yeah, is. And yeah. I think that you know, like I was getting a lot of people were like, you know, with with us performing at ODC, it's a mm-hmm. completely, you know, this piece or these, you know, everything that we're going to present was really, I got to a place in performing in the concert stage where I was like, you know, I, it wasn't enough for me anymore. And I'm like, you know, the people that inspire most of the work that a lot of artists do don't get to see it, right? Maybe they can't afford to come to the show. Maybe they have so many life things that are keeping them from the theater. So really this piece was designed as a model of, like, 
performance art protest in action because I was like, you know, it's fine to do it in the theater, but the theater is a very sanctioned space, and I'm interested in the spaces where we don't have permission. Like Rosa Parks didn't ask for permission. She just said no. You know, mm-hmm. you don't you don't ask permission for the revolution to happen or for resistance to happen. And so I was like, you know, I feel like we're in a time where there's so much performing of the progressive and of the revolution and of resistance. But people are not really willing to be uncomfortable or to put their lives on the line. And the United States is one of the only places where we can at this time, maybe not in a couple weeks or in a month, but I have an opportunity to present a work like this and not be murdered. And that, you know, I'm very, I'm very present with the privilege that I have to be able to present this work, whether it's on the street or whether it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to run, keep on running through your, your bio, and then I want us to talk more about about what you call um, this work, an undoing spell to untie all the knots that choke the future from natural disasters and systemic oppression to forced migration. It's a work of both healing and resistance. And um, I noticed that um, you uh, you came through, you know, that wonderful institution. Uh, I don't know what it's looking like now in, in San Francisco, at San Francisco State University. But you were probably there when all those wonderful um, elder women, African women teachers were there. And I want to pour an ashe to, um, to Dr. Uh, Nasisi Caillou, who, who right. made her transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, those those were the ones that came and got me. Not, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Dr. Kai was my teacher. Dr. Bird is my teacher. Alicia mm-hmm. Pierce is my teacher. Malanga Costa mm-hmm. Lord is my teacher. Carlos Atacuno nice. is my teacher. Perquisto mm-hmm. is my teacher. Um, so many teachers. Miss Blanche Brown is my teacher. <laughs> Michelle mm-hmm. Martin is my teacher. Portia Jefferson is my teacher. All of them. They all they all brought me into being who I think I am right now. And um I didn't really know you know, I didn't know I was a regular Frisco, San Francisco youth. I didn't know anything about no conscious nothing and no drums. I just went to San Francisco State because I was in Upward Bound and I got that's the college I got into. So mm-hmm. When I met all these people, they really came and got me. It wasn't, I was like, no, I'm going to, you know, be a journalism major or something. And they were like, no, 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 no. You need to come on over here. And I was like, no, I'm not going to be able to survive as a dancer. I don't want to be, uh. And I had all these notions about, like, what an artist, you know, like what it is to be an artist and how I would just be struggling and hungry. And even though that happens sometimes, I just, you know, I always have to thank them for pushing me and <laughs> chasing me down and being like, no, 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 you come over here. <laughs> oh, wow, that is so awesome. So, so tell us about, tell us about the work, because um, there, there are a lot of, a lot of parts to it. And also I want to mention that, um, that you, um, you were part of uh, the, the, uh, what is it, the professional, you got a professional division, U.S. Independent Studies program something or another at Ailey School? Oh, yeah. Uh. I just I just went, that's how I came to New York is I, I got done at mm-hmm. San Francisco State in 2000, and then when I was coming, I was didn't know what I was going to do, so I bought a ticket to Cuba because I was like, let me just go and 
see if I'm just going to travel the world and study dance. Because, I, you know, I ended up doing it anyway, but I, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And, like, at the last minute, I think my mom got tickets to see um, Ailey at the Zeller Block and Ron mm-hmm. Brown did Grace in that show. Ah. The LA company was performing, and Ron Brown, I did Grace, and I had never seen anything like it. And so because I saw Grace, I decided mm-hmm. I was going to audition for the Ailey School the next day because I wasn't going to. I had auditioned the year before, and I didn't get in. And so I was like, mm, I, you know, maybe I'll go see the show. So I went to see the show, and at the last minute, I was like, I'm going to audition. I went to Berkeley, I auditioned, and then I got into the professional division independent study program. And then, so that was June, and then I was in New York in September. Oh, wow. And then Ashe started performing <laughs> in December. Oh, my. And I was, wow. You know, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick little, this is your destiny, you know, moment. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you get those kind of calls. Like, they're, you know, you don't have to wander around. It's like, this is what we want you to do. The ancestors are yeah. telling us. Right. Yeah, that's nice. You know, sometimes yeah, you have to wander nice. around for a bit. It's good when you get a more direct, right? <laughs> and you listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always been that way, though. So I guess, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. that is a blessing. It is a blessing, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. So so tell us more about um this wonderful Have No Fear, a Bluesico, and, and your, you know, your dance theater collective and you know all the different pieces that are you're pulling together that people won't know like wow this was a real big thing um you know both sides yeah, of the, I, the country and you know all these yeah, different creative minds that are coming together and you know the multiple genres you know there's dance there's live music um yeah, yeah. talk to us about it so um <clears throat> it began with um, I start. I choreographed the first section of Have No Fear. So Have No Fear, a bluesical, is composed of three parts. The first part is called A Break for the Five. I choreographed, I started to choreograph A Break for the Five, I'd say in like 2007, for a show called Native Tongue that happened at LBC. The show was presented by Hasinta Vlock. And so it was really her show, but she she wanted me to do work in it, or she asked me to do work in it, and I said yes. And originally, it was kind of an idea. I knew that, just from my personal experiences, that um, my friends, a lot of the black folks in Frisco were leaving. They were going back down south um, when I was in San Francisco. And there was a point where I wanted to come back to San Francisco. My friends were like, don't come back here. Something like new and kind of dangerous and strange is happening. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to come home. And they were like, no, no, don't come back because you're going to get caught up in it. And I was like, I don't understand but, you know, I think they were describing, like, the prison industrial complex had gone from something that we were marching in the street about and, like, something that was over there that we were, like, standing up for, and it became, like, very personal and started to affect my family, their families, people we know. Um, and so it became kind of like if you stay in San Francisco, you kind of have a couple fates. You'll either uh, get addicted to drugs or the cops will kill you or um you you know turned out by just street life um and so it was really hard they were just like it's really hard for black folks so a lot of people are going down south so a lot of people are moving out and that's when gentrification really started to pop 
And so my friends were like, just don't come home. There's just no, there's not opportunities to hear for us like that anymore. And so when I was, when I started to make work, you know, you can't make the same work that is relevant out here in the East Coast to what's happening in the Bay because the Bay is like a whole nother thing. So although mm-hmm. I can do the work that ha- is happening out here, there's just way more diversity in the African diaspora. So the the things that we are talking about or talk about in the Bay, it just, there's different issues you need to address when you're there because they're just different places with different populations and people from different places, you know. And so I decided I was going to do a break for the five, and I wanted to do um, a rah-rah for the, like, disappearing population of African Americans and just people of color in San Francisco. And so that's mm-hmm. how it started. So I looked at the, the model of a Haitian rah-rah and how it was used or it is used as a form of political protest, but then also looking using some of the, like, voodoo of it, like the sequins to reflect the negative energy away, um, and also kind of creating this inner diasporic syncretization between not only um, uh, visual like aesthetics from Haitian folklore, but also from uh, folklore that comes from Trinidad and Tobago, and just kind of making this place where the diaspora meets and decides that um, we're all cousins and we're all Africans and we share a lot of, even though our specific situations are very different, we still are kind of um, speaking up against the same forces that seek to oppress us and silence us um, and take our freedoms away. And so that's how Break for the Five happened. And then it grew a little bit bigger when Mark Bamucci Joseph brought us to the Bay Area to perform in the Living Word Festival, I believe in like 2010, nine. We did it twice. Okay. We did it like 2000, maybe 2008 and then 2010. And so it grew into mm-hmm. something bigger. Um, and it just kept growing and growing. And I feel like my pieces, all the pieces that I create are like children. And, you know, people, you know, in the society we live in, people want you to produce all these things really quickly and make pieces, make works, and what are you doing next? And I feel like that's one thing that I've really resisted is I've been like, you know what, I'm going to take time to grow this work to its full realization and potential and really see what it is. And if it takes me 20 years to do that, then I'm going to do that. And so this is the piece where I feel like I really dug my heels in and was like, no, I'm not just going to keep making things to make things. I'm going to make things that have, that have relevance and are poignant. And so um, that's how a break for the five happened. That's the first section. The other part of a break for the five is that I'm the first, female in my family on my mother's side to not participate in the quilting tradition um, in our Mm -hmm. family and my family's from South Carolina and so that's a big deal Um, that was a big deal in our family and so for me because I didn't grow up in South Carolina because I just visited and I grew up in the Bay I always felt like a really strong connection to my family but that you know I'm always like the diversified cousin or the kind of outsider but the 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 how do you say the tradition the tradition of the Baptist Church although I'm not Christian at all it is very strong in me because my grandfather Reverend C J Whitaker was a Baptist minister um, and he was responsible for forming the first like Democratic Party in Greenville South Carolina so he was also an activist so that runs strong in that side of my family and so I wanted to participate in that quilting tradition with my mama's people because I was like you know I feel like they speak to me in dreams and they give me all this 
kind of um, inspiration in the work that I create. And so I wanted to be able to speak to them further. And so in creating a break for the five, this is my like, this, these are my patches for my familial quilt or my ancestral quilt. This is like my telephone to my ancestors on that side of my family. Um, and then after I came, after I, I've been working on Break for the Five, we performed it a bunch of times. It kept growing and changing. Um, and then in 2011, after I was in the Bay Area um, for quite some time presenting work at CounterPost, um, I hmm. came pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> and so my daughter was born on 9-11-11. She was born during Occupy Wall Street. And I remember people calling me like, it's going down. You need to come out here. And I was like, I just had a baby at my house. Like, I've been in labor for four days. I can't come outside. And so my um, that kind of put me in a moment of like, okay, well, I can no longer be a lieutenant in the same way in terms of actions. Like, I can't go outside right now. I might not be able to go outside all the time. So how can I participate in the things that are happening and the things that I still very much believe in and support without being on the front lines. And so that's when I think have no fear started to bubble at that time, mm-hmm. like a little bit after my, my daughter was after she was born, uh, I still was performing a break for the five and I was trying to figure out like, okay, how do I do this? Cause I can't, I mean, I can go outside with my baby, but when we get pepper sprayed, that's just, and then my family's going to like jump on me cause I had a baby outside in mm-hmm. in some kind of you know whatever so I was I was really kind of in a place of stuckness and I think what pushed it through is then I became pregnant with my son in 2014 and I was doing a residency in Trinidad and um, while I was in Trinidad or while we were in Tobago uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started so although mm-hmm. we all knew know that these things were happening already have always been happening it just became way more highly publicized. And I was like, yo, like, I got to go back to the United States, and I'm pregnant with this little boy. Like, it's all bad. So, so yeah, so that's what I was like, how am I going to teach my children to protect themselves? Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, like, now it's a state of emergency. And I had had pieces that people had kind of warned me about that I had done, like little singing and dancing pieces that then later became a part of Have No Fear that that my friends that were folklorists was like, you know, you got to be careful, like, singing and dancing and all that because, you know, you're talking about people and they might come get you. And I'm like, well, you know, Nina Simone did it, James Baldwin did it, Bob Marley did it, James Brown did it. Like, if they did it, like, shouldn't we be doing it too? Like, didn't they show us a way to do it? And so mm-hmm. – I think I was building the work inside of other works for a very long time, but I think I was I was maybe a little scared to put it all together. Into I knew mm-hmm. it was something, but I just didn't want to put it all in one piece because I knew if I did it like little by little, I could see how people would react to it. And they had some strong mm-hmm. reactions, even though they were just sections of pieces. And so when I got back to Brooklyn, um, there was, you know, the gentrification that's happening and the dislocation, all the things that are happening in the Bay Area are beginning to still beginning to happen in Brooklyn. It hasn't happened in the Bay out here as severely as it's happened in the Bay. But um, there was some filmmakers that wanted to collaborate with some neighborhood artists, and they were doing a fellowship for this organization called Union Docs. And so we were connected through one of the dancers in my company, 
and um they were they are they were three white women that lived like in the neighborhood so they were gentrifiers and technically I'm a gentrifier too because I'm not from here I'm not from Brooklyn but I moved here so but my situation is a little bit different and so um, we started to work together, and for us, I mean, I took it to Ashe, you know, because Ashe, a long time ago, transformed from, like, just being a body of dancers and performers on stage to, like, a, a nation of mamas and babas and children and people that are all really taking care of each other, kind of like how folks did during the Great Migration when you would move from your various parts of the South and you would come up to the city, and even though you wouldn't have your blood family close, you would make your... So that's in the, in the spirit of the Great Migration. We're, we kind of did the same thing. And so I took it to mm-hmm. them, and I was like, you know, these are three white women that want to do this film on us, but, you know, white folks stay making money off black suffering. So I was like, I don't know if we should do it. What do you guys think? And so they decided, they said, okay, yes, we will do it, but if anybody starts getting, like, major bread off it or anything, then we got to pump the brakes and we got to redo contracts and all this stuff. So Ashe agreed to do it, and we began the process. And for me, it was really like, okay, the new neighbors are here. They're not going anywhere. So instead of, like, just beasting out on the new neighbors, let's see what – let me try to be a human being. Let's share this lineage of being humans on the planet, and let's try to see what working together looks like. So we didn't have a whole lot of bumps and scrapes because, like I said, they're filmmakers. I'm a choreographer. We we share the lineage of art. So that really united us. You know, there was there was definitely cultural scrapes. And in the film, you know, there's things like I look like I'm a single mother when I have an amazing partner and I love him and he loves me, but it looks like I'm a single mother. And, you know, there's little things where I'm like, okay, you guys made some editing choices that were interesting. But I love them. They're wonderful people. And I guess they took this film all over the world. It won awards. And I, in the meantime, I just started going and getting my MFA and just living life and being a mama and being a choreographer, doing all the things I do. And then, like, a year later, it just had – the film had had a whole life. Like, when I was in Europe, I guess I was in Germany, and then the film was in Poland, and the Polish people wanted me to come to Germany. It was a, I was like, really? I was just reading books. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that all these things were happening. And so that's how the second section of Have No Fear started, right? Because it, it, in the film, it's called Have No Fear. So after right. they made the film Have No Fear, then I was like, Okay, I, I think that's what this piece, this next section of this piece is called. And so when okay. I then I started to go into my thesis, and that's when it really took shape. Where I decided, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna hit all these different ideas that really keep us silenced. And I really wanted to look at the idea if I I am a, an African American woman that has always grown up with fear. I've raised I've been raised in fear because. That's constantly how your parents raise you. You just know not to act a fool because you're afraid either something's going to happen. You're always afraid something's going to happen or there's a consequence, you know, like a, such a thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if? What would it be if I really addressed white Jesus and how the iconography of white Jesus has negatively affected people of color across the planet? What would it be if I really wrote Aunt Jemima's quitting speech? And I, you know, as a salute to, like, Aunt Jemima as the survival masquerade and, like, talked about how my grandma 
scrubbed your toilets and ironed your curtains so that I don't have to, so that everyone is clear about who we are. And like, what if I taught my children rhymes, nursery rhymes that would stick in their heads so if they ever got in a situation where they were faced with police officers that didn't have their best intentions in mind, they would have this soundtrack playing in their heads so they would know their next steps and they wouldn't flinch or put their hands in their pockets so that they got hurt Mm -hmm. you know so there was there were several there were several motives for have no fear the bluesical and one the most important one was to keep my children alive and to keep all of our children especially Nashe because between now between us now there's about 13 children and most of Mm. them are boys and so I was thinking about our boys and how we were going to teach them, you know, whatever we could, because, you know, whatever can happen. It doesn't mean like they have this song in their head and they won't get hurt, but it it may give them a very clear soundtrack as to their options. Um, Mm -hmm. I was also like looking at the idea of ritual dance theater and the power of prayer because in African tradition my elders always teach us that you have to be really specific in your prayers and that the power of words is very strong and so the the songs that go with the pieces um, are very intentional and they're clear you know it's not I've done so much work where so much of the the music I've created is like coded and proverb and it's double entendre and you see this in a break for the five but in have no fear it's really it's it just says what it is and it does what it does. It wasn't about like creating the most intricate choreography and abstracting things so far that people couldn't identify what they were because I wanna get Auntie Such and Such out of the laundry mat to come and see what I'm talking about, to see if she'll come to the courthouse with me and hold a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to i I'm not trying to get, you know, the the this that foundation donor to see like oh that I that I've studied and that I've I have this certain level of technique it's really about people being together in a room in a space and trying to figure out and shifting it's not even offering an answer it's really like okay if we get together in a space and we shift then something else might shift because if you look at labor if you look at When a person is in labor, like, you really hope and pray that at the end of the labor that you have a child, that you have a person. But some people don't have that outcome. But whatever whatever the outcome is of labor, you still shifted, you still changed changed, and you still grew. And so that's, that's what I think that I'm trying to do, especially when it comes to this time in history that we're in. Nobody really knows what to do because all of these constructs of whiteness and blackness and other and all of these different things, we were born into them. And so we can, we can have all of our decolonizing, our imagination, all of these different things. But in the end, we're all trying to figure out, like, what actually to do to shift the, the like, foundations of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism that keep us all stuck. Because we we live here, so we all support it. We're all a part of it, but nobody mm-hmm. really knows what we can do. And so my idea is real simple. It's like if we come together in a space and we actually shift our bodies in a space, then maybe that will cause something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, well, we're kind of out of time, but I wanted to um, give you an opportunity um, in closing 
to um, maybe talk about, um, maybe give the names of of the members of Ashe. And I know you're going to have um, a special um, Oakland-based musician who also yeah. serves as the music director. Um, and I don't want to mess up um, his name, so that's why I'm not <laughs> saying it. Unless you do it. So, yes, I want to know if you could give give the give the names of of you know the other members of of Ashe. So this process has been quite challenging because the cl- the ca- cast is split on the West Coast from. Um, even though Guy DeShallis is from New York and was mm-hmm. the artistic director of Ashe Dance Theater Collective for many, many years, he moved to the Bay Area. And so he is the, the fiddler in the work, and he is the musical director of the work. We also have the extraordinary voices of Tassie Long and Zakia Shapeshifter Harris, they are just like gorgeous singers and amazing artists in their own right. Like aside from me, they have their own things going on, and you should check them out. Um, mm-hmm. The other drummers we have working with us are Pablo Soto Campo Amor, and he is an extraordinary visual artist as well. And then we have Eliyahu Salam. Um, and so those are the Bay Area kind of Ashe folks. I would also put uh, Andrew. He's a lighting designer, and he has been with us since Counterpulse. So I would definitely throw him a, like a shout out to him as a dope lighting designer. Um, from mm-hmm. the East Coast, uh, we have uh, Alexandra Jean Joseph. We have Brian Polite. We have Kendra Ross, Aaron Holmes. Um, ay ay ay! Oh no, Kendra Holmes, Tanisha Newland. Um, I think that's everybody. Yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Those are all, right. Yeah, those are all the Ashe East and West folks. Okay, and um, the filmmakers again? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Imani and Zinga. That's the other one. Imani and Zinga. Oh. And Stephanie okay. Bostos. What am I doing? Bay Area, Stephanie Bostos. She's also in it. I'm so sorry. Stephanie Bostos is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it says the, the project's filmmakers include um, Beata. Beata Kalinska, uh, mm-hmm. Tracy Williams, who is also, she's also working with us, like art direction, like helping us um, do some of our social media stuff, um, mm-hmm. and Sarah Jacobson. Um, and everything really has been brought together as well by an organization called Purpose Productions, um, ran by Austin Edwards. And um, our production manager is Marisol Ibarra. So I think that's everybody. <laughs> right. Um, so it's a whole village of people. Nice, nice. And again, we're speaking to Adia Tamara Whitaker um, about Ashe Dance Theater Collective uh, having uh, its West Coast premiere of Have No Fear of Bluesicle. Again, October 17th through 19th, um, Thursday through Saturday. That's next week. 8 p.m. and uh, that's at ODC, and uh, you can go to ODC um, dot dance forward slash bluesico, and ODC is located in San Francisco, and I'm looking for an address. Um, oh, here it is, 3153 17th Street, and uh, tickets are 15 to $30, and um, um, I think is that everything? Um yeah, do you have a website? 
I do. It's ashedance.com, A-S-E-D-A-N-C-C-E.com. Okay, super, super. All righty. Oh, I know what I was looking for. There's going to be a talk on next Friday, um, October 18th at 6.30 at ODC. Uh, ODC is going to host you in a conversation, a public talk, presented in partnership with the Institute for Curatorial Practice and Performance based at Wesleyan University. So I think that part is free to the public. So folks will probably come out and hear you, you know, sort of expound on, on the concept, you know, you know, with that that MFA, you got the language too, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Maybe you have MFA. copies of your dissertation for us to be able to take home. Um, <laughs> all righty, oh, well, super. MFA. Yeah, well, look forward to well, um, thank you so much. Uh, thank to seeing you, so much you next week. Me. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. You so so funny. Um, yeah, uh, you were talking about Counterpulse San Francisco and Jess Curtis uh, Gravity. Uh, is presenting his um, second weekend of Invisible um, this weekend at, at Counterpost. I just thought that was kind of cool that, you know, sort wow. of you all are like crossing, you know, each other um, in the um, uh, in this conversation. So if you want to oh, wow. say hi to Jess, he's on the air now with uh, a couple of other choreographers, Sherwood. Uh, Adia. Ken. Oh, Sherwood, what's up? Hi. <laughs> and Gabriel Christian. <laughs> Hi there. Hi everybody. I'm so sorry. That was very loud. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was so thrilled loud. to hear Adia, to the, the master who was already a master before the ma- MFA, I have to say. Aw, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Okay, yeah. so take care, everyone. All right, safe travels. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Good luck. Bye. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for your patience. Um, I'm glad glad you were able to to say hey, uh, Sherwood. I'm glad you're also able to join us because I know you're going to be traveling in a minute um, to your next hey, destination. Wanda. Hey, yeah, and and thank you so much, uh, Jess, um, for you know being available, Jess Curtis, to talk about you know your um, your. Uh, your program, you know, this year, this 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 season, oh. and uh, yeah, and I remember last year we had an opportunity to talk about gravity. I just love gravity; like it's so heavy, right? And we got people without electricity, <laughs> right, as we speak. Like what? Mm-hmm. What? I mean, the people with money without electricity, like not the poor people that have been living without electricity on the streets for a minute, like they know how to survive, but the folks, like wow, isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, turning off really the electricity is. like for five days maybe like uh, yeah. So yeah. we're looking at the maps. Who's going next? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, gravity presents invisible. How do you experience a performance by seeing it? What if that's not possible? So I'm trying to think. Should I run through all of your bios and then we could talk about invisible? How sh- you think that will work good? I mean, should we do it that way? Your call. Oh, can you tell us we're what, really, we're, what invis- We're happy to be oh. here. Okay. At well, your service. Maybe. So, Jess, why don't you tell us? I'll read your bio, Jess, and you tell us what um, <laughs> Invisible is, and then I'll read Gabriel Christian and Sherwood. And Sherwood, I'll, we'll let you talk a lot because we know you might have to slip out. 
So Jess Curtis is an award-winning choreographer and performer committed to an art-making practice informed by experimentation, innovation, critical discourse, and social relevance. He has created and performed multidisciplinary works throughout the United States and Europe with the radical San Francisco performance groups Contraband and Core and the experimental French circus company Cahen Caja. Yes. Did I say it right? Okay. In 2000, he founded his. So hopefully you were able to catch um, um, Invisible last week um, because it's gone. It's over. Um, (laughs) So because this is from this this, uh, interview is from the archive. So it's a really wonderful interview, and uh, you definitely want to catch Jess Curtis' um, work. However, um, if you missed um, it, um, it, it closed last weekend. So we are going to play that interview that I mentioned with um, Dorsey uh, Blake, Reverend Dorsey Blake. And, uh, yeah, we're going to go into overtime with that, but it's a really wonderful, wonderful conversation about the 75th anniversary of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples uh, weekend uh, anniversary um, series of events again tomorrow is the uh, Dorsey O. Blake Forum for Social Transformation, 10 to 4 at the church, uh, 2041 Larkin Street at Broadway in San Francisco. And there is parking. Um, he's going to tell you where at. And then on Sunday is the convocation, um, uh, and that's going to be at 3 o'clock. And everything is, information is all at the website, fellowshipsf.org. So enjoy the wonderful conversation. Ah, good afternoon and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are so excited to be speaking to uh, Dr. Dorsey Odell Blake um, about the 75th, my goodness, long time, uh, 75th Jubilee anniversary of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. Um, And uh, that's going to be on... Saturday from 10 to 4, uh, October 19th. And then the next day, there's going to be another wonderful program, uh, the Convocation, which um, uh, is going to be honoring um, Dr. James uh, Abington. And he is an eminent scholar, organist, and master choral conductor. I should have some music, right? I'm just teasing you. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but maybe... um, I'll be able to get some music, and we could put play some a little later. So I just want to let you know a little bit about um, our special guest, who is no stranger to these airwaves. Good afternoon, um, Dr. Blake. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. So we're finally having this conversation about this busy, busy weekend that's coming up. So. Um, yes. I'm going to let you tell our audience more about it because I just told them the titles, but I know that our audience is probably really interested in What does it mean? Um, you know, the 75th Jubilee, like, wow, 75 years uh, of a church yes. that's so unique um, and such a institution in the San Francisco Bay Area, but a lot of people don't even know about it. Um, right. So, anyway, so, yeah, so tell us a little bit about the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples and this 75th uh, Jubilee, and, uh, yeah, 
and then the next day, you know, the convocation, which is which which anniversary well, is it for that? Well, it's the twenty fourth, Howard Thurman convocation. Okay. Uh, we mm-hmm. celebrate yeah. years ago. We decided that part of the celebration of our anniversary would be the Howard Thurman convocation. Mm-hmm. Um, so our church began in nineteen forty four. You recall in 1944, we were in World War II. There was a lot of tension and a lot of people killing each other. In San Francisco, there was a great migration from the south to San Francisco because of the war industry. The population of black people in San Francisco zoomed, and that created problems too because San Francisco, as liberal as we know it today, also had its problems in terms of segregation, racism, and, and so on. So there were two people, well, actually more than two people. There was a white Presbyterian minister and professor. He was a professor at what was then San Francisco State College. His name was Alfred Fisk, and he had talked with some people in the area about an interracial congregation, creating one, this would have been the first intentionally integrated um, church in the United States in 1944. Remember, in 1944, all the churches were segregated. Uh, that doesn't mean that maybe a, a black person might attend the service here and there, but they were segregated in terms of leadership. And he, a letter was sent to Dr. Howard Thurman, who was a black minister and professor at Howard University at the time, who was getting to be known uh, throughout the country as an extraordinary preacher and a teacher, leader. So what happened was that Dr. Thurman received a letter from Ed Muskie of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Dr. Thurman had been a member of the uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation for some years, and so had Dr. Fisk. And the letter indicated that Dr. Fisk and the people out here in San Francisco were looking for a young black person to serve as co-pastor of what they perceived to be this new church. And there was no one they could find. Uh, Dr. Thurman recommended somebody, but he said the young man at the salary was not enough for him. Dr. Mm -hmm. Thurman then thought that, oh, my God, this might be the answer to the vision he had at Kyber Pass. Now, Kyber Pass, the, the experience there was after Dr. Thurman, his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, a Bishop Carroll, he became Bishop Carroll, and his wife had met with Mahatma Gandhi. This was in 1936. They met in India with Gandhi. And Gandhi at that meeting told them that it could be, uh, in fact, it probably would be through what he called at that time the American Negro, that nonviolence would have its most powerful exposition. Okay. Now, one of the things to be, that's really important is that Dr. Howard Thurman was a very close friend of Martin Luther King Sr. And Mrs. Thurman was a very close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, Alberta. <laughs> so when Dr. King was studying at Boston University, while he was, Dr. Thurman was also there as chaplain. Dr. Thurman Mm -hmm. was the first black chaplain um, at a predominantly white theological seminary in the country. So it was there that King came by, and they talked with King 
about nonviolence. In fact, they even asked him about coming to Fellowship Church to become the minister. This was after Thurman had left. And that is when Dr. King told Dr. Thurman that they had just decided to go to Montgomery. Okay, to go back. When Dr. Thurman was in India, actually it was a pilgrimage to India, Burma, and Ceylon. And while he was traveling in those countries, the question was raised with him why he was a Christian when Christians were so much involved in the slave trade. And they even said the author of one of your hymns was a Christian who trafficked in the slave trade, which is true. The author of Amazing Grace was a slaveholder. So the question kept being raised of why are you as intelligent as you are a Christian? And um, because your faith basically is racist is what they were saying. Well, that led Dr. Thurman starting to write a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And the question mm-hmm. he raised in that book was, what does, and he made a distinction, what does the religion of Jesus have to say to people with their backs against the wall? In other words, mm-hmm. it's a message from the religion of Jesus to the, what he called, disinherited. He made a distinction between the religion of Jesus and Christianity, because he thought that Christianity had violated much of what Jesus was about. Jesus was, he said, a Jew, a poor Jew, a poor Jew living under the domination of empire, Roman empire. And if you read his book, you'll hear that he has a message for black people and other oppressed people today living under empire. So what happened was in 1944, Dr. Thurman and Dr. Fisk came together, and they formed this church, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. You mentioned at the very beginning that it was unusual or unique. That is true because people at Fellowship Church did not seek memberships based on what you thought religiously. They were looking for people from very diverse backgrounds, nationality, racial, gender, backgrounds, because the belief was that if people came together with these various backgrounds, if they came together and worshipped over a sufficient time duration, that they would find common ground, they would seek a kind of uh, coming together that would undercut undercut all the divisions by which people live. It would destroy all the social barriers imposed on people. Again, that was 1944, and for San Francisco, again, the population had really increased, and uh, this was a great venture saying, how do we bring these people, new black folks coming to San Francisco, the white folks already here, uh, the Asian folks, you remember this is after they had sent many of the Japanese to uh, these concentration camps, how do we build a community among the various racial groups? and national groups in San Francisco. And so they started the church for the fellowship of all peoples. Again, it was not based upon what you think religiously. It was saying, come together, people. Bring your diversity here. And we believe that if we can worship over a sufficient time duration, there will emerge between us an understanding, a sense of common ground, a sense of unity that will take down all the barriers that divide us. We've been doing this for mm. 75 years now. And so this yeah. is a 
remarkable time for us to reflect on where we've been and where we are going. Um, this year is different because the board, we decided also to have a forum. And the board, in honoring me, this is not my idea, I decided to call the Dorsey Blake <laughs> Forum on Social Transformation. And that's ah. on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 19th of October, beginning at 10 o'clock and going until 4 o'clock. I've been talking about the need for social transformation for a long, long time. Uh, I think you and a lot of the people who are listening understand and really agree that many of the values which are dear to us in terms of justice, equality, and so on are not being achieved now, achieved, and they can't be achieved through our current structures. So our point is we have to look at alternative realities as we move forward. Some of the panelists are, in terms of co-ops and other different ways of organizing economics and so on, for example, uh, our speakers are Gus Newport, who was a former mayor of Berkeley. Um, he was also head of the uh, World Peace Council. He's just received an award, the Cahill Gibran Award, for his humanitarian service. He was a person who helped to put together the Dudley Project in Roxbury, the first community to ever claim eminent domain to receive um, land and create housing for people who could not afford housing, and they totally cleaned up a community which had been the garbage pit of the area. That's literal. People would come in from different areas and just dump garbage there, old stoves, refrigerator, actually food. Um, Gus Newport, Carl Anthony, who many people know in his work with the Earth Island Institute. Um, he is also part of the Breaking um, Forth Communities, Breakthrough Communities, okay. and is the author of The Earth, the City, and the Hidden Narrative of Race. So Carl will be part of that panel along with Gus Newport, Desiree Fontenelle with Movement Generation, Kevin Bayouk uh, with Lift Economy, and um, Noni Session with the East Bay um, uh, real estate cooperative. So it's going to be a great panel. There will be time for discussion among people. Uh, there will be a dinner, and there will be a play. There's going to be a play, a short play, that talks about the founding of Fellowship Church. So that's Saturday, the Dorsey Open mm -hmm. Forum. Then on Sunday, we'll have the Howard Thurman Convocation. And this year, we're actually honoring an extraordinary person, James Abington, James Abington is a choral director. He's executive director of the African American Church Music Series. He edited the book, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, an African American um, ecumenical hymnal. He went to many black churches and found music from all those churches, Pentecostal, Baptist, United Methodist, Episcopal, Catholic, all these groups and put them together in a hymnal. But the hymnal also includes new songs, like there was a song written about Katrina and what happened at Katrina. Oh. So he's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. He conducts workshops all across the nation and beyond. And then we have the extraordinary soprano, Hope Briggs. Mm -hmm. Many of you know her from her extraordinary work in San Francisco, just an amazing soprano, and master drummer, Hope Flynn. From Ghana, Pope has been with us every year for the last I don't know how many years. Just masterful with the drums. 
And then there's a community chorus that's been organized by my brother, Dr. Carl Blake, who's also the music director at our church, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. So that's going to be Sunday, the 20th at 3 o'clock. We will not have morning service, uh, so just a 3 o'clock service. And the address is 2041 Larkin Street, 2041 Larkin Street. That's Sunday at 3 o'clock. The forum is Saturday, again, from 10 to 4. And there is parking we've arranged to for people to park oh. at St. Bridges Church on Saturday. Um, so um, go to their website, which is www.fellowshipsf.org, um, fellowshipsf.org, and there's information about parking. Hmm. Wow, wow. So um, on Sunday when you're honoring um, uh, Dr. James Abington, where yes. where is he located? Like what part of the country does he live? Oh, he's in he Atlanta right now at Candler uh, Seminary. Yes. He's uh, in where is Atlanta. He? At oh, okay. Atlanta mm-hmm. at Candler Seminary. Yes. And he just recently played the organ prelude for the uh, memorial service for Jesse Norman who passed. The last week or so, um, mm. he's known all across the country, not only as a choral director but as an organist. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to play oh, wow. for the Hampton um, Baptist uh, Preaching Conference. Just an extraordinary person and a very gentle person uh, with a great humility. Mm-hmm. So, Hampton, you mean like Hampton, Virginia? Yes. Oh. Is he from Hampton, Virginia, or is he from Virginia? No, he's from West Virginia originally, but he's played. Okay. He's been part of. Well, he actually played for as was music director many many years in Detroit at Hartford Baptist Church mm-hmm. with a Dr. Charles Adam. Adam. Um, mm-hmm. He played for Ralph Abernathy's church, West Hunters Baptist Church. He played or was part of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And in my introduction oh, wow. tomorrow, I'm going to give a little, um, I'm going to talk about his relationship just a little bit to Martin Luther King Sr. So he's oh. quite well known um, mm-hmm. throughout the nation. And he's done workshops. He conducted a workshop last year on music that was held at Third Baptist Church. He, in oh, the past, has been at Beth Eden Baptist Church conducting workshops. Mm-hmm. So he's just an amazing person. Hmm. Nice. Is he going to play anything um, on Sunday? Um, he I know he's being honored. Well, actually, he's going to give a lecture. He's going to give a lecture on Howard Thurman as liturgist and how Thurman used the spirituals and other music uh, as part mm-hmm. of his understanding, yes, uh, his understanding of uh, church. And then there's the community chorus, which he made direct. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll we'll have to see if that happens. Oh, that's going to be awesome. What a wonderful weekend. Right. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, let me tell our audience a little bit about you and um wow and and how you how um you know, you're being honored with, you know, this this wonderful um <laughs> forum, you know, Dorothy O. Blake Forum <laughs> for Social Transformation, you know, so every year now. <laughs> That's gonna be super, really cool. So it's a great way to kick it off with these folks you, you um, yeah. you know, you name that are part of this this first forum on Saturday. So um, 
Dr. Dorsey O'Dell Blake was officially installed as presiding minister of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in October 1994. Fellowship Church was founded in, as you already mentioned, October 1944 as the nation's first intentionally interracial interfaith congregation. And I was just thinking um, when, when you were talking about that wonderful film, you know, Backs Against the Wall, the Howard Thurman yes. story, a film yes. by Martin um, uh, Doublemeyer. Do, mm-hmm. yes. How do you pronounce it? Uh huh. Yeah, and you're, you're in the you're, you're in the film, and uh, <laughs> well, and we actually my name um, is mentioned in terms of yes. Mhm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like oh, we know yes. him, and yeah, because that was um, that was yeah, that was this year in um February, I believe that it screened on right. um. On what is it? Um, American. Um, I'm trying to think. What is it? Um, Great Masters oh, series. Yeah, yeah. Yep, okay. That is a really, really good film. I'm sure you all have it in your library. You all have a really nice yes, library. <laughs> the Church for the Fellowship of All People. But there's a, Go ahead. But there's another film. It's actually mm-hmm. dialogue between Howard Thurman and Landrum Bowling, and this was produced mm-hmm. in the late seventies, like seventy-seven. And people uh-huh. can go to uh, the internet and get it. It's called mm. Conversations with Howard Thurman, and it's mm. two hours long, but it's broken oh, into wow. two one-hour segments. And you really get mm-hmm. a chance there to hear Thurman. Uh, as, mm-hmm. It's more of an interview with Thurman rather than a film about Howard Thurman as uh, the right. film against the wall is. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that sounds great. And then I remember um, I had you and um, you know Reverend Liza. Um, Ranko on my show um, quite a while ago when um, that yes. that series of um, of, of um, in, not interviews but different um, sort of excerpts of of um, uh, no sermons yeah yes. sermons of um, yes. of uh, Dr. Thurman on different Thurman topics and yes. it, it came to, yeah what was called what was the name of the uh, the, the uh, package it was on you know, the I'm think. trying to remember. The Living Wisdom of Howard Thurman. Right, The yeah, Living Wisdom yeah. of Howard Thurman, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know um, uh, Reverend Liza, you know, she um, she hosted a, a series of, of, of workshops, sort of, you know, listening and talking and discussing, you know, these wonderful sermons. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that was a really wonderful um, conversation that I played over and over again. <laughs> well, I enjoyed Since, the, uh, um, I enjoyed the conversation. Mhm. Yeah. So, so back to your, um, to your bio. Um, so, co-founding minister um, Dr. Howard Thurman is considered by many as one of the most extraordinary religious figures of the twenty twentieth century. During Dr. Blake's installation service, uh, Mrs. Sue Bailey Howard uh, Thurman presented Dr. Thurman's robe, which had not been worn since his death to Dr. Blake as a symbol of her trust in his leading the congregation, quote, so that there will be no past greater than our future, end quote. Dr. Yes. Blake had served as the minister for two years prior to his installation. <laughs> yes. In addition to his position at Fellowship Church, Dr. Blake is presently faculty associate at Pacific School of Religion after serving there from 2015 to 2018 as visiting associate Faculty. 
Dr. Blake served as Dean of Faculty and Visiting Professor of Spirituality and Prophetic Justice, that's a nice title, at Sar King <laughs> School for the Ministry for six years. Spirituality and Prophetic Justice, like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was a title I chose. Uh, oh, okay, okay. What does it mean? <laughs> well, um, I think that I think there cannot be much social justice and social transformation without dealing with the spirit, um, mm. and that's one of the reasons I guess I I respond so much to Dr. Thurman because he saw that spirituality, deep spirituality, was a part of what was necessary to really belong to a community, and Martin Luther King certainly embodied this also. So I feel as though if we're going to talk about, and even you look biblically, uh, really look seriously biblically, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about salvation of a community. Uh, it is not really that thing that many people think it's just about, I got Jesus in my soul and that's it. No, it's not. The question is, then what do you do with that? For example, we have a group that meets every month called Engaged Spirituality which means how does our spirituality impact our social reality? How does it lead us to the beloved community? And that's one of the issues we're going to discuss in the forum. Uh, what is beloved community that King talked about, and how does the work of these people uh, lead us or help us to at least inch forward toward that promised land? And one of the things we know is necessary, and what I try to do in those classes, one of the things that's necessary is for us to develop a new consciousness, a new consciousness that goes beyond individualism of the American society, a new consciousness that understands that we're in this together, we're all related to one another, what happens to one happens to the other, and that we have to move toward beloved community as a community. And that, and the exciting thing, Juan, about this is that we have resources. We have resources to do it. It's the idea of committing ourselves. For example, you look at the initial church community, there is a statement in the book of Acts that talks about, and there was no poor among them. Why was there no poor among them? It's because those who had money, those who had wealth, shared it with those who didn't. And when you look at how much money there is in the black community, think of what would happen if we could work together and share that. For example, there are a lot of co-ops black co-ops that are emerging. Uh, when we talk about Noni Sessions and her uh, East Bay permanent real estate, we're talking about bringing people together and putting money uh, in communities. The same thing is true with movement generation. Uh, suppose, for example, and for example, our church has put its money now in a cooperative, self-help cooperative, mm -hmm. worker-owned mm -hmm. cooperative. Uh, there's a huge cooperative in um, Cleveland, that really deals with laundry. There's what is called the Mondragon Cooperative, which started in Mondragon, Spain, which employs, I think, millions of people right now. I mean, their, their economy rivals that of Spain, all the rest of Spain. So what I'm saying is that when we look at the social transformation, spirituality and social transformation, we're talking about the resources that we do have can, in fact, be applied in very creative ways to bring about what we need to bring about in terms of dealing with homelessness, um, dealing with food insecurity, 
uh, dealing with even the questions of brutality and so on, where begin, community begins to police itself, or we come up with a different understanding of what policing is all about uh, in terms of prisons, a different understanding of prisons or the abolition of prisons. So it's looking at the fact that we have power. We don't realize it. We don't use it. But we have power to change the society. We don't have to wait until the government or whomever gets elected president to try to change things because we know there are limitations there. And we're not going to get to the promised land or to bless the community by just relying on structures that are already there. Because, in fact, some of those structures are responsible for the awful conditions under which so many people live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when is your engaged spirituality? What what time is it? Mondays. Once a month, it means at nine thirty, and you would need to go again to our website www.fellowshipsf.org because the schedule changes. But it's once a month at nine thirty in the morning, and then once a month we have a social justice uh, documentary film series. And it has just been amazing, some of the things that we have seen on film. Mm -hmm. It's just really extraordinary. Um, So those are ways we have been trying to not just prepare people for this forum and for the convocation, but to really seriously look at how we can make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Moving right along through this wonderful um, short bio, which is is limited, folks. Um, we you could write a book. <laughs> and oh, actually, have you written some books? I'm I'm trying to remember. Have no, I, I have an read article in a book, Matthew Fox, and I keep saying every year I am going to write. And every mm-hmm. year something comes up in the summer which um, calls to me. And I mm-hmm. said, well, maybe I'll just not be one of those people who write a book before I die for it. But, for example, this summer was uh, I was called to participate, to attend the um, Samuel Proctor Institute at Alex Haley Farm in Clinton, oh. um, Tennessee, by Marion mm-hmm. White Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund. And she is extraordinary. I never wow. experienced the kind of leadership that she provides. And it was just amazing, just absolutely amazing. So I'm working with them now in some capacity, hopefully uh, next year doing a workshop on Howard Thurman. So that's what keeps happening to me. Hmm. (laughs) I keep saying that right, and I don't. Wow. Yeah. What happened last year in the summer? Oh, and this year, too, the other thing that happened was I was invited Hmm. to go home to my hometown, Hmm. Liberty, Missouri, where I grew up, mm-hmm. I was born in Kansas City, but my parents moved when I was eight months old to my father's first pastorate in Liberty, mm-hmm. Missouri, and we were invited back to celebrate the 142nd anniversary of the founding of our little uh, segregated school, Garrison Elementary School. It was also a Juneteenth celebration, so I was invited mm-hmm. back to, to speak. My brother gave a concert the next Saturday. And I preached at my <laughs> father's church that Sunday. So things happen, different things in the summer, and I just can't yeah. seem to say no to them. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't say no. Them. They sound fabulous, these things that are happening they in the are. summer. <laughs> yeah, they, they keep happening, yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. Wow, that, that sounds wonderful, the 142nd 
uh, yes. founding of the school. Wow. It was called Garrison Elementary School. And, of course, at the time, mm-hmm. it was all segregated, and yet I was a way to sort of honor, at least in my presentation, I did invoke the presence of all those black teachers who were there, Miss uh, mm-hmm. Bradley, Miss Kerford, Miss Mack, Miss Ferguson, and our principal, Mr. C.E. Gant. In fact, a mm-hmm. friend of mine has a pl- has done a play on uh, Mr. Gant. Uh, Shelton Ponders is his name. Shelton and my oldest brother, William, were classmates. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a remarkable look at how he prepared uh, his students for what was finally desegregation and actually for what happened to him later when he was not employed uh, by the mm-hmm. predominantly white school system in a capacity as either teacher or principal. Wow. Yeah, my, I shut my computer down, and now everything is making noise. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm trying to, like, figure out how to turn it off. Oh, I think it's done. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's Yeah, I'm trying to, like, where was I? Oh, um, so anyway, um, yeah, wow, that's amazing. Professor of Spirituality and Prophetic Justice, that's where we left off. Right. And and then um, you continue to serve on the core faculty, um, I guess, at Star King School uh, mm-hmm. for the ministry um, until your resignation uh, in January. About, I guess, that same the same year or 2015. 2014, right? Okay, 2014. Okay, and and now you currently serve as faculty associate of pastoral leadership and social transformation. At Pacific School of Religion. Yes. And um, prior to joining the faculty at Star King, oh, did you want to say something? Well, yeah, and that's a um, mm-hmm. it's worth experience. PSR Pacific School of Religion is my alter alma mater, and it's mm-hmm. really a part of oh, the really? there. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Um, I came out oh. here in 1968 from Brown University and went to Pacific mm-hmm. School of Religion and graduated in 71. With at that time a mm-hmm. master's degree in urban black studies, as well as the oh. master's of divinity degree, because at that time mm-hmm. we had a center for urban black studies at what we call the mm-hmm. Graduate Theological Union, which is an umbrella organization for uh, um, several Catholic and Protestant seminaries. It's called mm-hmm. Holy Hill. And this right, year, one yeah. you might be very interested. You know, Zaytuna, mm-hmm. which is the nation's first liberal arts Muslim college. It's also located on Holy Hill. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So is is everyone? Are all of the different um, theologies represented now on that hill? Yes, a lot of not only various Christian organizations, I mean Protestant, Catholic. You've got a center for Dharma studies. So we're talking about Hinduism mm-hmm. being there. There's a center for Islamic studies, a center mm-hmm. for uh, Jewish studies. There's a relationship with the Institute for Buddhist Studies. And so mm-hmm. most of the major uh, religions are, in fact, represented at um, the Graduate Theological Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's um, that's not that's kind of unusual, right? Um, that yes, it is. Okay. It was because I was thinking, I don't know where else it might be in, else, in other uh, particular kind of um, institutions throughout the country because there are other you know, um, really well, well respected ones, but I don't know if anyone have that kind of uh, no, discipline, I think, I think it's the diversity. Most 
It's the most expensive. However, many, many years ago in the 60s, the uh, mm-hmm. Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, which is a black man, did pull together mm-hmm. at that time, which is very important, at least black uh, seminaries from various um, traditions. So that was important uh, at that time, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, prior to um, joining the faculty at Star King, um, you served as founding director of the Doctor of Ministry program and later as vice president of for community learning at the University of Creation Spirituality. Um, yes. And yeah, is is the University of Creation Spirituality still around? It morphed into Wisdom University, and so oh, okay. one of the things that happened is um, new funding came in, and uh, Doctor, in fact, Matthew Fox uh, is no longer really part of it, so it went in another direction, and um, oh. so it still does exist. At the Wisdom mm-hmm. University, and there is a Matthew Fox Institute now in Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. where Matthew lectures quite often and speaks quite often. But it's not the okay. same as the University of Christian Spirituality. Yeah, that was a nice place. Yeah, it I, sure I was. Like, <laughs> yeah, was at Holy Names. I think that was like some of those golden days. Um, I didn't follow it. It was at Holy Names, and, and then it moved to downtown Oakland, twenty second yeah, Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would made it really close to the people when it moved to Broadway. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you all had a lot of Wonderful. really good community programs too, mm-hmm. like right. the lecture series and things like that. Yes, mm-hmm. it was a yeah. great place to be. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And we, and sometimes we do things for a few years, and then things move on. So we're very proud of what happened in those few years we're in in Oakland. Mhm. Yeah. And uh, in addition to responsibilities for curriculum, uh, student and faculty development, um, you helped to initiate the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration initially held at Taylor Memorial United Methodist Church that annually draws over 1,000 people. I didn't know it wasn't there anymore. Where did it move to? It moved at one point to, uh, was it Castlemont High School? Not Castlemont. Or was it? Um, I think so. And then I lost contact with it because I had not gone the last two years. Okay. But what oh. happened with that was that a couple of us decided when the, the uh, doctor ministry program was first started, we actually met on Martin Luther King's birthday. And some of us mm-hmm. thought that, oh, that was not right. We could not have classes on Martin Luther King's birthday. And so we decided to oh. move the doctor ministry program from Monday to Friday to Tuesday to Saturday in terms of uh, the Martin Luther King holiday being on Monday. And then mm-hmm. we decided it should not just be a day for us to take off, but a day where we looked at some of King's understanding, some of his writings, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we are inaugurated that, and it was held at, we asked my friend Ron Swisher, Reverend Ron Swisher, who just retired last year from the ministry. Mm-hmm. He was pastor of Taylor at that time, if he would host us. Mm-hmm. And he did, and we drew... 400 people, then the next year more and more. And then by after a while, I left the university, and it grew to 1,000 people or so. It was really quite amazing. <laughs> the idea behind mm-hmm. that was that really some of us, I was very bothered by the fact that Martin Luther King gets so watered down uh, during Martin Luther King events. 
uh, the real Martin Luther King does not emerge, the radical Martin Luther King. What we're doing, in fact, on Saturday, really comes out of much of Martin Luther King, what Martin Luther King said. He said before he died the year before that what he was envisioning as beloved community could not be done through the form of capitalism that was rampant in this nation. He argued for, he did not use the term, but he argued for what we would understand as social democracy. He was a social democrat. And um, he talked about the need to totally restructure American society, to go to its roots and come up with a different way of people living. He even had a budget. He talked about there should be an annual budget uh, given to all people so everybody had an annual income. He talked about there should be free health care for all the people, housing. This was Martin Luther King in 1967. And we haven't gotten there yet, and yet we have all these programs talking about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King. So the idea behind that was to raise up the radical, the revolutionary Martin Luther King, and certainly we did that for a few years. Hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, because I remember reading um, uh, some candidates that were um, looking um, at um, the mayoral um, position um, here in Alameda, and and I hadn't heard about the idea of having uh, sort of a baseline income that would be right. available to everyone, and and how that was affordable to do that. So then that means it that is. everyone would have a certain base income, which means nobody, like you mentioned earlier, there's no need for poverty if people share, right? So yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's as early as 1966, I think. His name was Hyman Bookbinder who was an assistant mm-hmm. in the Office of Budget Management. And Dr. King mm-hmm. quoted him as saying that we could eliminate poverty in this country if the rich agreed to become even richer but at a slower pace, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look at the trillions of dollars, even this past weekend, the tri- being spent on uh, the Blue Angels, Angels. Right. The kind of what's that? I said the right. Kind of money yeah. There could take care of a whole lot of homeless people. Mm-hmm. And so this is what it's mm-hmm. about looking at our priorities, how messed up they are, and trying to help us to look at different kinds of priorities, but not only looking at them, but committing ourselves to going forward to implementing a different vision of who we are as a people and who we can become as a people, as a nation, and as a global reality. Uh, to go back to what you read about Mrs. Thurman, you know, her point is so that there will be no past greater than our future. Isn't that something? She's, mm-hmm. Her insight was just amazing, that we must work so and um, commit ourselves so to a new kind of world order that there will be no past, regardless of how glorious things in the past have been, no past greater than our future. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I just think um, you know, you seem to be the the perfect person to have, you know, sort of been, you know, installed, you know, as presiding minister of the church for the fellowship of all peoples because when we think about um Dr. Howard Thurman and his work, you know, at Howard University, you know, he was always sort of like really visionary in his look, you know, and also mm-hmm. the way, yes. you know, that 
he viewed ministry right and um yes. uh and incorporating the arts um and you know it was like complete body immersion into the spirit right i mean he was just yes. like it, it was you know just sort of thinking about some of the the programming and you know it wasn't just like somebody standing at the pulpit preaching at people it was more like embodiment <laughs> of the word right yes mm-hmm. i say to people yeah. i had the chance the wonderful opportunity to study with Dr. Thurman. So I studied mm-hmm. with him, and I was also program director of his Howard Thurman Trust for a year out here mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And what mm-hmm. I tell people, he embodied um, what he calls the all-pervading presence. He embodied the divine. So regardless of where I might be in my religious struggle, if I was having doubts about God or the reality or whatever, when I was in his presence, I believed, I felt mm-hmm. the presence of the holy, of the sacred um, in him, always. There was, and when I first met him, this was aura that came over me, his aura. And I mm-hmm. knew, and I finally raised the question, are you Dr. Thurber? He was just an amazing <laughs> person who um, incorporated in his very being the holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I just wondering sort of when, you know, when you met him and were able to, you know, to study with him and did you have any idea that where where the path, you know, would lead you, you know, like that moment? <laughs> sort of like no. in the future. No, I didn't. I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea that I would ever end up at his church. Um I just didn't. When I first met him, I was not sure where I was going in terms of my own ministry. I was fortunate enough to come when I came out here to have an internship with Reverend Cecil Williams at Glide, and that was just amazing in terms of the things that he was doing, working with welfare mothers, uh, helping to organize the Officers for Justice, the black component to the police department, trying to give a different understanding of what policing was about. He did so many different things and um, helped me to to really come into ministry because there are a lot of other things that were things that were sort of turning me off. Uh, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, helped me to mm-hmm. see how Jesus was really about the oppressed. Um, it was not about just his single holiness or acting like he was holy. It was about how do I live in empire, and he mm-hmm. showed us ways that people can live in empire and not only retain their souls, but to help others to move forward, uh, to awaken others, like the Buddha, I mean, to, uh, to awaken others to their possibilities and social realities. So it was a blessing coming out here, and Dr. Thurman was part of that. Uh, when I met him, it was not only that, I mean, the, the first class, the class I had with him, he said, I'm going to read to you from the Gospel of Mark. Moffat translation, he said it would take exactly one hour and ten minutes. And when he finished reading, I'd never seen the life of Jesus so clearly before in my entire life. You could see this young man who had decided that he had to dedicate his life, this is Jesus, to um, changing the world, um, to embodying the Spirit of God. And when Dr. Thurman finished reading, I looked at my watch, it was actually, it was exactly an hour and ten minutes, as he had said. And mm-hmm. it's just interesting. Uh, because not no one in the class raised a question like they usually did. 
This was at San Damio's retreat center in Danville. When he finished, I looked at my watch, exactly an hour and ten minutes. Nobody said a word. One by one, we got up out of our seats and just walked out into the night air. That's how powerful it was. Nobody said anything. We were all just led to the deepest resources and recesses of our spirit. And I think what we all did was to walk out in the air and communicate with the great creation, the wonderful cosmos of which we are a part. That was the power of our Thurman. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, wow, we're writing a little book as as we uh as we run through your <laughs> your very brief <laughs> resume. <laughs> um so um you know we spoke about you know your various um faculty positions uh and one of the places we didn't mention that you've uh, held um adjunct faculty positions um is the uh California Institute for Integral Studies uh the Union yes. Institute and um and you've also served on many lucky persons, uh, scholars, dissertation and thesis committees. Um, you served as the director of the Center for Urban Black Studies at the Graduate Theological Union, and I think that's when I met you, and yes. a core faculty yes. member at GTU. So that was a while back, and I remember, I think, when yes. it went away. And I'm like, oh, that's so yes. sad, because um, it was such such a great um, support for um, those in the ministry that were from yes. African African descent, you know, to have that kind of like, because there was a different yes. conversation happening that was not happening in the classroom, and so, you know, I heard about how great that was through through my friend Carrie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if Carrie's last name. I can't remember Carrie's last name. Riley. Uh, Riley was yeah, Carrie Riley. Yeah, Carrie, Carrie Riley. Yeah, Carrie Riley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I might have met you through Carrie, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure. I think so. But that's, yeah, yeah. Do you ever hear from Carrie? I don't no, know where he no, is I, no, I don't. Okay. No, I don't know where he is. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, wow, you've, okay. yeah, you need to publish this. <laughs> you are also <laughs> the first full-time black male professor at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Tulsa yes. in 1972 to 77, where you taught in the religious studies department and designed a major in black studies. Um, right. And you already told us that you came out here from Brown University, uh, where you mm-hmm. received your AB and your MA, uh, as you mentioned, from Pacific School of Religion and the yes. Center for Urban yes. Black mm-hmm. Studies, and your MDiv mm-hmm. from Pacific School of Religion and your MDiv from United Theological Seminary. And uh, the, you've conducted sim- – oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the University of Alabama experience was really quite amazing because uh, oh, okay. I left here in 19 – I did not know I was going there. I graduated again from PSR, Pacific School of Religion, mm-hmm. in 1971. Between 1971 okay. and January 72, I served as the assistant to Dr. Williams, who at that time was the director – and president of the Center for Urban Black Studies, mm-hmm. what happened was that um, there was a professor at the University of Alabama named Joe Bettis. He was chair of the Religious Studies Department. And I guess he decided, although he didn't tell me he was leaving the next semester, that one of the things he wanted to do was to integrate 
that school, the the College of Arts and Sciences, which was the largest college. And so he contacted a Bishop Will Hirschfeld, who was from Alabama and worked in Alabama and knew Martin Luther King. Uh, Dr. Hirschfeld, or Bishop Hirschfeld, was the vice president of the Alma Black Clergy Group, uh, which was a group that ordained me. And Dr. Hirschfeld was also the vice president of the board of the Center for Urban Black Studies. So he contacted Dr. Williams, um, saying that Dr. Bettis is looking for a young black person to teach at the University of Alabama. So I was chosen. I never even thought about it, but Dr. Williams just said, you're the person. And so I had like two weeks, actually, to leave the Bay Area to organize two courses and to move to Alabama. Uh, But I found that Alabama was – the experience in Alabama gave me a whole lot of respect for the people in Alabama who worked for social justice. Because even when I got there, it was not easy. The the racism was still there, very, very Mm -hmm. uh, prevalent in the air. Not as bad in Mississippi. And Mississippi was another question altogether. So I really commend James Mm -hmm. Meredith for integrating the University of Mississippi, because I never would have. It was just so absolutely racist there. You could feel it everywhere you went. But Mm -hmm. uh, it was a great experience because I had the chance my first chance to really deal with black undergraduate students and to see their needs and to try to bring some kind of hope and to establish a sense of pride in them and to give them a historical understanding of who they were and also an understanding of how empire works. So we read things like even Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, um, Mm -hmm. novels and so on, that tried to help them to see their place in the universe. And that was an extraordinary experience. It really was. And I'm glad I went there for five and a half years. It was an amazing experience for me. Wow. So you, um, so what was the major you uh, you designed in black studies? What was it called? And is it still there? I think it is still there. It was actually, we were able to do it through special studies. We did not design a black studies department. But mm-hmm. a student could get a, a a degree with the emphasis on black studies. It was through okay. other courses that were being offered and pulling those courses mm-hmm. together. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's, that's but there was no separate department. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I like Alabama. I went there for the first time last year. Yeah. Ah. Montgomery. Yes. You went to the uh, museum. Yes, and the uh, the National Memorial for for Peace and Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. were you there? I haven't been there yet. I've got to go. Oh, you will love it because you've got history in Alabama. I don't know where <laughs> Tuscaloosa is in relationship to Montgomery. Where is Tuscaloosa no. more north or? Yes, it's not very far uh, because. Okay. Well, just another brief story. When I was in Tuscaloosa, when they had decided to drive to Montgomery, which is where the capital was. And mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is I did work for a year as the assistant to the minister at 16th Street Baptist Church, which is where the four little girls were bombed. You um, did? But one day, I, yes, uh, for a year there. Um, That's in Birmingham. 73. Yes, in Birmingham, right. Oh, and, my. Um, okay. But one, one day I just decided, oh, I've never been to Montgomery, so let me drive to Montgomery. So I did. So I got in my car and just mm-hmm. drove to Montgomery, and I came on this street, ended up on the street Dexter Avenue. Oh, and yeah. I was like, uh, I'm going Dexter Avenue. I said, that's where Martin <laughs> King's Church was. 
And uh-huh. since I was downtown, you could tell I was downtown. I said, well, I guess this church would be to the left uh, in the hood or somewhere. But I turned, so I turned <laughs> right, and I saw the state capitol. And so I was driving toward, toward the state capitol, but right before I got to the state capitol, on my right was Dexter Avenue, Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. They're right mm-hmm. there together. It's just you've got a parking lot that separates them. And in my mind, I go, my God, the symbol of white power, where Jefferson Davis took the oath of office as president of the Confederacy. There's a big star there where he took the oath of office. And then right next to it, across Caddy Court, is the symbol of black power in Martin Luther King and Dexter mm-hmm. Avenue Baptist Church. So it just really goes, oh, my goodness, I never knew they were in such close proximity. Now, one of the reasons yeah. this, and I'm going to that is really important also is that um, Martin King's predecessor, Dr. Vernon Johns, who was also quite rather quite militant and a brilliant preacher, they got rid of him because he was too militant. And he would put things on the marquee like it's okay for um, police to kill Negroes in Montgomery, things like that, that many people consider to be incendiary. And so he was constantly being pulled to the um, uh, sheriff's office or other places to, to talk about he needed to tone down his sermons. And when I saw how close they were, again, the state capitol and the church, I could understand. I gave Vernon uh, Johns even more credit for having the audacity to mm-hmm. confront uh, the state capitol, uh, people in the state capitol, the legislators, uh, with his sermons uh, being so close because it was just amazing, just amazing. But they finally got rid of him, Vernon Johns, because they considered him to be too radical, the church, and he did some other things they didn't like. And so they were actually mm-hmm. trying to go into, they wanted somebody who had not given the kind of publicity that Johns was attracting. <laughs> so they ended mm-hmm. up with Martin Luther King. <laughs> this was a great right. irony for history. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. Wow, that is that is a really great story, and um, and then we move, you know, into um, you know your your travels and your awards. Um, uh, you're the recipient. Um, uh, let's see, you conducted seminars and workshops locally and nationally, including one with uh, Rajmohan Gandhi, the grandson yes. of Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, right. and right, North and Virginia, um, Richmond. Oh, okay. And and you're also the recipient we, of numerous. Oh, you go ahead and tell us that was. Uh, <laughs> it was the uh, the group called the Moral Disarmament or Rearmament, whatever, of American Society, and we did a workshop on uh, Martin no on Howard Thurman and, and Gandhi. So that was a reason okay. we were put together. Yeah. Mhm. Okay. And uh, let's see. Um, Okay, and you're a recipient of numerous community awards, including the first Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Award for your work with international students while at the Ohio University, where you established the International Students Emergency Fund. Um, do you have a story for that? <laughs> yes, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to keep. It. Yeah, <laughs> I was there during. I was really there during the time of the Israeli invasion of uh, Lebanon, uh, which mm-hmm. left a lot of people, Palestinians and other Arabs, just destroyed their homes. In fact, there was one fellow who told me that he was he was in such distress because he was watching TV, and he saw where the bombs had landed right where mm-hmm. his parents lived. 
and he had not heard from his parents. He had not heard from the neighbors, and he was really concerned. And so, therefore, he did not have money to continue at the school in terms of his tuition. So some of us went to the um, dean, and we argued with him, and we were successful. There was a policy that where they allowed students to, to be behind one semester, and we argued that that should apply to the students. Um, whose families were in the Middle East at the time and did not know what their finances would be. So we did that, and we did some other things. I used to go, there was a restaurant at campus called the Oasis, and it was owned by white Americans, uh, and their daughter was married to a fellow who was Palestinian. And so I would go there, and the students expected me, it was like my second office. In fact, they would expect me to be there, the same student. I was telling him about one day when I finally talked with him. I went over, and he was a little bit concerned. Mm-hmm. He said, "You haven't been here every day. I've been looking for you, and you haven't been here." <laughs> well, they would not come. To my, they would not come to my office as you know campus ministry uh, mm-hmm. because they're they're Muslim, and there was still this oh. kind of um, those, yeah. And but they would go. I would go. I would go to where they were. And so mm-hmm. what happened when I got the award? It was five hundred dollars, and you're supposed to use it. Uh, to, for some kind of international understanding of whatever. And so I met with the Muslim Student Association and said, mm-hmm. this award, I want you to tell me what you want, what will help you with your cause. And they said, we would like to 